0: Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally, and all of our programming is brought to you by Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. You can go to byobcoach.com to get Scott's book, or you can go to Amazon to get the hardcover. That's what I did. And it basically will take you from uh, prepare through your off season, uh, get ready for your show, take you all the way through your contest, you know, peak and everything. Uh, and reverse you out to plus all your training and everything it's all basically figured out in that book if you want to do it yourself and be your own bodybuilding coach Um, we're brought to you by you guys thank you to everybody from patreon i dropped a message to let our patreon people know that this was happening i also dropped a a, a little mp3 on the audio channel so that those guys weren't left out i don't want to leave you know our, our audio people out So hopefully we have some of them tuning in. Let me know if you guys are tuning in from normally being an audio listener and you heard that message. Uh, We are brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK. I just placed an order today, Scott, for uh, more of their hydrolyzed beef collagen because I'm a huge Mm -hmm. fan of that and I never want to stop taking it for the rest of my life. I wish (laughs) I started taking it 20 years sooner. Uh, I just get the unflavored version and I mix it in my coffee. Use our code THINK over there. Get some additional savings. And for our Canadians... SupplementSource.ca. They have awesome deals that change week to week. So if you're not picky on what you want to get, you just want to find a hell of a deal. Go over there because you'll get some awesome stuff that normally would have been like 60 bucks for 20 bucks. Plus, they've got ephedrine and all that other stuff over there. So check them out. Um, and, um, you know, that's really all I got. Of course, check out Strong Sports Nutrition for you guys in the UK, too. You know, they're more of a sponsor for drugs and stuff. But I wanted to mention it here as well. So what's up, Scott, today? Oh, I'm seeing people who are from the audio, too. So thanks for stopping by, Mitch, and anybody else. Um, As I was saying before we officially got started here... We are uh, gonna do a QA and a with you guys, so post up your questions. Um, I wanted to talk to Scott a little bit more about reps and reserve, because I hung out with uh, a bunch of people over in Australia that were all about reps and reserve, and it, it, okay. I had a lot of questions, Scott, I had questions. <laughs> You're crazy. I got some stuff I gotta get off my chest. Uh, um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about IGF-LR3, or just IGF-1, that's what you really looked at, right? Not directly at LR3, right?
1: Uh, I kind of cover the whole thing. I, okay. I went into the DES one three IGF one LR three or LR three IGF one long R three IGF one the whole kit and caboodle. So this is your first podcast back since you've been back from Australia. All right. Yes, yes, okay. yes. So I'm kind of a little
0: bit rusty. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, I imagine right. No. It's been been almost three weeks, I think, since I've been on the air now. So I'm glad to be back though, and it's nice for this to be uh, our first one. I'm glad we could do it live too. You know.
1: So cool. Yeah, I'm, i was resist the urge to ask you all about the Australia trip, but l- l- I'm interested to hear your maybe your rant or your pseudo rant <laughs> or what what it was that was that was kind of itching at you when you heard people talking about reps reserve over there.
0: Okay, so um, you know I heard uh, I heard. Uh, one of the talks that were at this lecture series, it was specifically about training. And um, there was a great deal of focus on reps and reserve in the way that it was put together. If I had never trained before, I kind of get the vibe that you don't ever, like failure is kind of a thing you don't want to do. And, mm-hmm. the you know, talking to people through the weekend, I kind of got the vibe that, the idea of going to failure is an antiquated idea that yeah. that's what people used to do. That's what all the bros used to do. And that's what people on gear do that if you're on okay. gear that you can handle that. But if you're not yeah. on gear, you can't. And you know, and, and so I started asking more people cause a lot of the people that we were talking to over the weekends or the week really. And then beyond that were people that were involved in like the functional training space and mm-hmm. it's it's definitely a newer school approach and mm-hmm. the vibe I get is that most of these people are unenhanced that these guys are natural right mm-hmm. and they feel that that it needs to be done a different way um and then just you know some of the feedback I got cuz like then I started asking other people I was like you know what do you think about this this is what we heard this is what I listened to and you know here's where I've come from what are your thoughts and I heard responses such as You know, well, if you don't know what failure is, and we've talked about this, if you don't know what failure is, then, you know, how can you know what three reps in reserve is? But if you don't know how to recover properly, then should you really be going to failure to begin with?
1: Yeah, that's that's the whole equation. You have to recover from your stimulus. Yeah. So so if you have suboptimal recovery and that the thought
0: was that people don't know how to recover the thought the thought Mm -hmm. was that people really don't have that stuff lined up they aren't taking care of their recover, like their sleep they aren't taking care of the modalities that we can do to improve our recovery um and so maybe they shouldn't go to failure
1: so let me let me sort of summarize so since we're half-assing our recovery, we should half-ass our training. Is that kind of <laughs> – the, the logic? <laughs> I mean it, it's, tr- it's true that I definitely wouldn't disagree with that. You can't – for people who are doing lifestyle clients, yeah. you, know, you, you can't just train them into oblivion. You know, When you know that they're going out on – you train them on a Friday and they go out and they have eight beers with their buddies and eat wings – you know, um, or if they come in, you know, and, and they're hung over or halfway hung over on a day you're training them, you just have to you have to adjust the training stimulus to match the recovery. Otherwise, otherwise you'll you'll eventually kind of go downhill or you certainly won't progress. So there's <laughs> absolute truth to that. I was being kind of facetious, but actually being realistic. There's total, total truth to that. Um, so the, you said a lot there, Scott. One thing pops in my head, too, is that with, with beginners, two things. One – almost anything's gonna work. You have this, for many people, you have this sort of ceiling effect, um, which is great. Statistically, i mentioned this many times before, statistically for um, studies, purpose of studies, you need to have a training effect. Or ideally you have a training effect, at least in one of your conditions. If your training doesn't work, which happens sometimes in studies, your training doesn't work, then if you're trying to compare one type of training with another or training with a lot of supplement or something on top of the training, you need to have a good training effect. So you you use beginners because they have the best training effect. The law of diminishing returns suggests that when the stimulus is brand new or novel, which it ultimately is with beginner, you're good to go. But also if someone is a beginner, um, you don't, you want to make sure their, their execution is, is on point, especially for the big lifts where things can be dangerous. So like, you know, taking even with like, for instance, DC training, which I've talked a lot about in the last, few podcasts i've done like three podcasts in german the last week or so and two of them we talked about dc training a good bit nice (laughs) and even with dc training he was um on the heavy sets of squats for instance or heavy bent over rows or heavy rack deads. those those were not rest pause sets where you're taking them to failure multiple times because that gets dangerous when you go back and this is for you know intermediate to advanced people who know how to push to failure even you know in that program, which is very much about giving everything you possibly can and digging yeah. in, um, there were where there were some adjustments to how the sets were executed. That you don't do rest pause sets for certain exercises because there's it's inherently dangerous to go to failure. Um, and as a side note to that, it's it's always bizarre to me. There was there was a lifter you probably saw this. This is the last six months or so a guy who died squatting. He was oh yeah! Outside Iraq and he squatted and he tried to dump and um, he had i I'm not sure exactly what the exact cause of death was, but it was, it was due to the accident incurred by not having appropriate spotting and not being in Iraq. Yeah. And I think that all the time, people want to squat and I mean, maybe they want to the increase danger and the fear of like, if I don't get this, then that's it. It's but a motivation. Abs- <laughs> it's a motivation, but it's absolutely just asinine in my mind. I like, sure power rack there for a reason you know the safety hooks are there for a reason in the smith machine um there's really no no reason to be doing anything where you you can't with a straight bar you can't even even with like incline presses when i would do dc training i'd do it my myself sometimes um this was kind of crazy but i would if i was using a free bar i'd move a um, i'd get a rack and i'd move an incline bench over to the rack and i'd go to failure with the safety bars in place and then i would Either if I needed to, I'd strip a, a plate off the side and, and I'd power clean the weight up or I'd you know, hook it in like kind of like a, a Zurcher squat, hook it in my elbows and put it back up on so I could start the next rep that way. Which So you can always figure out a way. Where there's, well, there's a way. Dumbbells, you can do this. Another kind of a side, you can get um, daisy chains or you can yeah. get power hooks. They're being sold as something else now. With dumbbells, um, you, can it, too, you, know? you can just drop them too. You can just drop them too. You have to. DC training, you hook, you hook uh, them up on a... If you have a pull-up bar or you have a bar, you just you hook it there and you just set at the bottom of your range of motion. And you've got yeah. spotting for your dumbbell. So there's always a way. Um, so, yeah, not training to failure has some practical advantages. It makes sense. I've got that set up in fortitude training. Um, but to if, if if the argument that because your recovery is not in place um, and that's a reason not to go to failure, um, I can see that argument that sort of does make sense. You have to match the stimulus to the recovery ability. But eventually, and this is the the thing that my sort of experience suggests to me, Mm -hmm. and it's been a while now, but Mike Isretel, for instance, who's sort of the main proponent of reps and reserve type of training, he and I, I think we pretty much came to an agreement on Steve Hall's podcast a few years ago. I'm not trying to call Mike out or anything, but like eventually when you get more and more advanced, you're going to have to increase the potency Mm -hmm. of the set meaning taking it closer to failure. Now, if your recovery is suboptimal, then your training is going to have, have to match your recovery ability. So the question then becomes, if we're making it sort of very simple here, you've got suboptimal recovery, is it? and you're becoming more advanced now, and mm-hmm. you need to create what is actually a stimulus. Do you do 10 sets with two or three reps in reserve, or you do five sets that are actually taken to failure or to zero reps in reserve? yeah um and that five sets um where you where you've got a high, more potent stimulus, I think is eventually where you're going to have to go because at some point in time, and this is where the reps and reserve thing has to be taken in context in terms of effective reps it's a really nice nice way of viewing things is that eventually you don't have any effective reps if you're stopping through reps shy of failure that set yeah. really doesn't do anything for you the way I sort of conceive of this um, and also, people people engage in this. I think it's um, maybe someone who who happens to be listening. Probably not. It would be nice. So someone who does. There are prog- there are ways to design programs where you use progressive overload based on reps and reserve.
0: Yeah, and that's right. so that's what the, this gentleman Jacob was talking about doing.
1: Right. Um, yeah. But but he and he had said
0: though, and, and he had been uh, like he had said he was highly influenced by Eric Helms. And a couple other Mm -hmm. guys, Uh, and Eric was Mm -hmm. at the seminar as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so here's the thing: is like I I see all of these guys as being really bright. You know, they're smart Mm -hmm. guys, and but but the question keeps coming back to me is like, you know, are you really gonna like Are we raising a a generation of lifters that don't know what failure means? Then that's that's my concern. The opposite being, you know, years ago, man, and, and still to this day, really a lot of guys are pushing like every set that they do to failure in the gym and mm-hmm. and they're, they're making progress. And I look at a guy like Cuba, you know, who, who we had mm-hmm. on, who was the last episode we had out uh, man. He's made tremendous progress. Now that said, he's on gear. I almost felt part of this, part of this too that confused me or made the conversation difficult. I'll say is I almost felt as though I, I was being disqualified from being part of, the conversation is having a valuable point because everything, you know, even talking to Eric, it was kind of like, well, you guys are on gear, you know, there's Mm -hmm, kind of like mm -hmm. that. That was like, so you don't really know kind of feeling nobody said to me that those words exactly, but I did get that feeling like, well, you hit, I got the feeling of like, and maybe I'm, maybe this is part of part of it is me. Just, this is what I thought. But the vibe was kind of like, you didn't really have to figure it out because you always had the gear there to yeah. make up for the fact that you were going to failure and that you can push further because you're on here. Mm-hmm. But then I look at guys like, um, you know, Jeremy Jason, who's a follower mm-hmm. of fortitude training, by the way, mm-hmm. he's, uh, I, I'm not sure how close you follow him, but he's, uh, he became pro in in a natural yeah. organization last just, year. I saw yeah. Him. Just competed. Looked fantastic. Looked out of this world. Mm-hmm. He's switching gears to powerlifting. Now he has a 20 year old uh, nephew. Okay. I believe it is All right. that's, that, who thinks he's the strongest in the family. So, uh, oh. Jeremy's, Jeremy Jason's going to show him up and now he's switching okay. gears to powerlifting. Okay. He's only five That's pounds nice. up from his stage weight. We just saw him yesterday for his uh-huh. son's birthday face, still looking oh, like sweet. Skeletor and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's training he's hard. He's reversing
1: now. out nicely. Yeah. Yeah. He's been doing fortitude training for three, maybe four years longer. I don't want to over-exaggerate it. To We've train, trained together train too. Failure. Yeah. Yeah. You train the failure. He's an natural guy. It's just totally fine. Strongest as um, heck too. Yeah. Well. Fortitude training is focused yeah. on progressive overload. So you do become strong in that regard. So there's yeah. an interesting, there's an interesting phenomenon there. And I want to, so and this is, this is something that, that has sort of been something that I'm trying to, I've been trying to bridge with what I do sort of in the bodybuilding space. Okay. is we have the pros who oftentimes will have sort of this called it, call it a one-sided opinion. is like, it's like you guys don't, you scientists who sit in your ivory tower wearing your lab coat, like you don't know what's going on. Like, you don't know what it's like to do that. And then of course we have people like Aaron Helms, for instance, who have been training for a long time. They know their way in and out of a gym, um, without a doubt. And so there's the interesting thing from the perspective of those bros is many of them say, they just kind of throw the science out like ah, It doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't work. But the, the thing is, is that they're not trained as scientists. So they're, they're, they're discarding, the scientific perspective without first understanding it because they haven't been trained as scientists. Yeah. And I've been trained as a scientist. So I understand the scientific perspective. i turn the gross perspective, and I try to combine the two. And as I always say, they, those, both of those perspectives take place in the same universe. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, there is some there and I can, I can see why, this may have been the finding of a particular study, and I like to try to match those things up with what the bro might see as from perspective. But yeah. I think it's kind of a logical fallacy for those bros who just say, oh, all the science is bullshit, and they just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater because they don't know that baby they don't know that bathwater, right, because they're not trained scientists. Yeah. In the same vein, and I'm not trying to call anyone out here in particular, but in the, in the same vein, if a natural athlete says, well, and you can know a good bit through the scientific perspective on this. But if they say, well, you guys are on gear, it's a totally different thing. And you can't speak to what what matters as a natural. How can they possibly say that they haven't been on before if they haven't used before? Mm. It's the same sort of logical fallacy as someone throwing out the science who doesn't understand the science. Okay. Yeah. Take someone who's, who's maybe trained for a long time as both a natural and, a, and someone who's used. Yeah. Um, and they may understand the difference And the way we did, we did a podcast on this back in the, um, um, with Paul Carter and Alan Aragon. I think we talked about this one. Oh yeah. Okay. So the topic and the, and the basic, the thing that sort of that I, I kind of recognize the conclusion I've kind of come to, and there's high variability here. Some yeah. people are responders to gear. Sometimes people are not. Some people are responders to training, some people are not, and the impact of gear on training is going to be a, make a difference. But to some degree, it, it'll it'll all sort of come out in the wash. I think
2: mm. um, hmm.
1: you you may be someone who goes from you know benching two and a quarter for six reps to four oh five for six reps. Um, so huh. you, everything become you become stronger, but it may turn out that your volume of training is is the same. You're using higher loads. Those have a greater impact on your recovery, but you've still got recovery limitations that have to come into play. And, and the interesting thing too, like if we look at like, where's the evidence, if you look at how most of the best pros train, I don't know if this is the case with naturals or not, but most of the best enhanced pros, well, I don't say most, but many of them don't train to failure. They've just got great genetics.
0: Sure. Right? Yeah. They so just it's not no like, matter what.
1: Like, they're all just everyone's just trained to failure and it doesn't really matter they can just do that and get away with it so um, there's sort of a logical fallacy behind saying that you know none of this really applies to gear because it just covers up all the mistakes you can possibly make there still is some limitation to training and as a piece of of empirical evidence to that effect we have we have dog crap training and I wish that all the all the uh, pictures and things that Dante posted way back in the day when he was actively training people were still available on intense muscle those those didn't get properly archived but yeah. he worked with plenty of natural people and he worked plenty with, with plenty of enhanced people and everyone was doing dc training which is taken to whatever you can you can bring as far as failure goes and yeah. both natties and enhanced people made gains with that um pretty much on an equal footing and i work with both doing dc training in particular so they both made gains so
0: a couple a couple other things um i talked to uh luke liam do you know luke Hmm. So mean? I, yeah, I I asked Luke about this, and mm-hmm. his thought was, he said, "Well, you know what? I've trained with Eric Helms before, and mm-hmm. Eric's version of three reps in reserve is different than what I think is getting interpreted by like the final the final person who's listening to these conversations. Right. That that he trains hard, like he uh-huh. is his." his three reps in reserve is probably like our three reps in reserve, which is going to be like basically failure. I believe it. Just meaning that, you know, just, yeah, just meaning that that like, you know, you're not getting that last three reps with like gun to your head reps, which is Mm -hmm. still kind of pretty much you're, you're, you know, you're really, you're pretty dang close at that point. So Mm -hmm. that was one thing. And then the other thing, now, maybe a, a benefit that I can see here for reps in reserve is this, um, because, like I said, I literally asked everybody, so I asked Luke about this, I asked everybody we came in contact with that was in the industry in one way or another. Uh, wow. I worked out with uh, Eugene Tao, and we did mm-hmm. an upper body workout a couple up, couple exercises for back, a couple exercises for chest. We had a blast by the way, man, in his his personal uh, studio gym, which is absolutely beautiful hand picked equipment you would dude, you would love it, Scott. He had like nice. a row of five I believe they're general gen Gen one nautilus machines so I I was eyeing this it was supposed to be a behind the neck pull down um Uh but we sat in it facing away I believe and then pulling down to the front you know pulling down Mm -hmm. to the front and it was man it was a good machine that was like I had my eye on that thing I was like man I gotta know how that feels (laughs) so we took two exercises for back to like hard failure And then from there, like I was shot, he was done. And his thought was this, he was like, listen, so maybe if we didn't go quite as hard, you know, we we backed off just a little bit, say 10%, we may have been able to do a third exercise Mm -hmm. and made up for that with volume, you know, maybe not torch the CNS quite as hard. It would be my, my interpretation of that then. And, and, kind of fill it in with a little bit more volume i could see there being a benefit to that especially for myself with with my you know health condition and stuff Mm -hmm.
1: so here's we've talked about some important studies Here's some of my favorite studies Um, we got the study where they train one leg two or three sets a week other leg five sets five times a week sorry three sets per workout on average there's no difference between those conditions but when they look at the individuals some better with more volume, higher frequency, some that the other way around. Yeah, um, we've also got we've also got the study that just mentioned about a month ago. I've mentioned on the other the German podcast I've done too, where they had heavyweight lower reps versus lighter weight higher reps, um, which you see in numerous studies. Those equal out in terms of the approach that you can evoke, and when they looked then at those who were the better responders, sort of the upper half versus those who didn't respond so much, and then they switched conditions. They went from heavy to light or light to heavy, either way. All those those individuals who were not doing well, regardless of which way they switched to, regardless of their initial condition, with one exception, I think, they all ended up being being better responders in the second half with the other program. We've also got then now a ton of studies, mostly with beginners, um, although there's a sort of a sub-analysis that's done in a Brad Schoenfeld um, meta-analysis where um, advanced trainers seem to be better, do, do better training to failure. There's some evidence suggesting that. Hmm. But we've got tons of studies looking at failure training versus non-failure training, and the early meta-analysis just doesn't really matter, right? Doesn't doesn't make a difference. Or maybe even it's not even to your advantage. What I suspect is just like those other things, volume and frequency or high-reps versus low-reps, we're finding on average that there doesn't seem to make a big of a difference or maybe trailer's is not the best thing um, for untrained individuals to start off that way. I think that there's an individual variability there depending mm, yeah. on the person. And one important feature of why that is, um, and you brought up a really good question uh, as to, with, in regards to one of those sets of studies is do we know why that is? Is that a biological physiological phenomenon is a psychological phenomenon that someone likes to train heavy or they like to train lighter, they just hate the high rep stuff or they like the heavier stuff or what have you. Yeah, um, training to failure is there's a huge spread there in terms of the actual reps that are in reserve versus what people will choose to where the people will choose to stop and how they perceive their three reps in reserve. Eric Helms's three reps in reserve is different than the average newbie's three reps in reserve without a doubt. Right, absolutely. And there's also the study came out showing people were self selecting like 50 some percent of the oh, that yeah. max when yeah. they train. So even advanced guys, the, right? Yeah, people just yeah. So there's and a lot of advanced bike people don't like train like just maniacs. What I mentioned the other day is that like when Dave Henry and I and my buddy Mike Gustus and you might listen to this when we were doing DC training in the gym back in, in in Tucson and at my place, like there was nobody that I saw training that way there's just no one who's doing that. People are always staring at us when we're doing our Widowmakers and <laughs> they're staring at, at Dave because he's Dave, right? Right. Um, but uh, people just didn't train that way. So I suspect that probably for perhaps some biological, physiological reasons in terms of what it's what it means in terms of potency of dose to turn on all the processes that lead to growth. Some people are just genetically equipped that hypertrophy is a prominent um, adapt- means of adaptation. You go in and they train, they use, they train with, you know, heavy enough weight and they just, there's some effort there. It's not like every set's a death set. They're just going to have growth. It's going to happen. Yeah. And we see that over, the, over the, um, the spectrum of load. We see with blood flow restriction training um, and the high rep training that you can go like 30, 40, 50% of a one rep max and with blood flow restriction training in particular, even the lighter weights. And that is enough tension to produce muscle growth. You don't got to train at 80% of a one rep max or 60% or above, which some of the early studies sort of suggested before we had this higher rep stuff and more of the blood flow restriction studies. So some people, you just put a load on there that's heavier than a grocery bag, things you typically would engage with in your day-to-day living, and they're going to grow, right? Other people are going to need to have a more potent, very specific stimulus physiologically in order to turn on growth i think this is my idea and you've got those people who are genetically gifted they have progressive overload and there's there's two sides to this progressive overload idea normally we think of it in terms like the logbook okay you got to get one or two more reps with this weight or add a little bit of more weight micro load and get the equal reps and you have to every single time drive that and that is I think that's the most certain way to drive progressive overload. And they do that in practically all studies. They use a progressive overload model. This is the interesting thing, is that progressive overload, really meticulous progressive overload, is what takes place in these studies. And most of them are training to failure in in, in the training, unless they're specifically looking at that. Most people aren't logbooking their stuff. Yeah, they're on their phone, you know, looking at Instagram, you know, or whatever it is that's doing, but they're not logging their stuff. They don't, they're not, you know, putting that carrot out in front of the, you know, the horse's nose. It's I got to get more reps. I got to get the same reps with this weight. Yeah. That overload is is going to drive the adaptation as long as you can recover. If you just naturally grow because you've got good genetics then you've got the other side of the progressive overload coin taken care of, and that you just adapt. So when you come back in, like most pros aren't logging their logging their stuff, many do now, more so maybe than I think it's 20, more and pop- more popular now, right? Yeah, yeah. But they just get stronger. When they start off, they don't got to do any of that. They just get strong. So they come back. So they, you know, they like, let's say they incline press two seventy five, and this they get the two two and a quarter. They're like, oh that 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 feels like tiddlywinks on the bar. I'm, I'm going 315 today, baby. And right. they get that, you just get naturally stronger. So the progressive overload just happens as a consequence of their adaptive capabilities. So I think there are going to be people. So that's the physiological biological side of it. Some people just grow better. Some people have to drive the growth. Some people have to focus more on the one side of progressive overload, some people on the other side. And then there's also the, the psychological side of things. Um, uh, taylor who was the um what he passed away he was uh um running the podcast way back when, oh yeah
0: taylor normandue
1: taylor Normandy yeah he i remember he was like one of the only people that i can recall who tried fortitude training out and didn't like it really he didn't dig it yeah he didn't like it um that was the only person i can remember actually and i don't think he, he just didn't like the training to failure i think he just didn't uh, that just wasn't his thing he should not <laughs> want to do that i wish here he here where I could, so i could ask him but yeah um, some people are just not going to do that so like they're just not going to do well actually and, and i also have that study that story from one of my trainers my first trainer at my gym way back when when we started to do dc training and we got to the Widowmaker and squats and i was kind of showing the ropes he's like scott i want to train with you I want to get big man wanna get big i'm like okay i'm starting pc <laughs> training here again yeah and i did the Widowmaker, and i got done and i crawled it was on a smith machine i crawled out from the bar and then i you know i Look, I went over to the place and like, so what do you want on there, man? He's like,
2: I don't want to do that.
1: I'm not doing that. This is it. I'm done. He just stopped. It's like, that was the last time we trained together. He didn't want to do it. Yeah, and I've so met I've people- met people
0: like that, you know, and I, I you, you get it. Yeah. Like, and it's you were the one who really got me to open my eyes to this because there was a time I thought that everybody needed to train really hard, really intense mm-hmm. And you told me you're like, well, you know, and and it goes back to this. Somebody had said, like, how do I get my, you know, how do I focus and get my focus up at the gym? And I wrote this little thing up and I said, well, this is the way I approach going to the gym. And I said, like, I, you know, like, I really focus on what I'm doing before I even get there. And I get to the gym and I don't get involved with talking to people. You know, I had this whole thing and I said, talked about my warm up and that. And I sent it to you, Scott. And I was like, look at this. I was really proud of it. And you're like, well, that's really nice, Scott if that's the way you like to train and the conversation came out to be that like, we're going to do what we enjoy a lot more, a lot longer than we're going to stick to something that we don't like, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this is supposed to be fun, you know,
1: Mm -hmm. I have, I don't think I've mentioned this, but it is an important insight. So when I did um, the training that we did for my dissertation study was electrical stimulation training on an isokinetic dynamometer. So it was non voluntary right i mean they they volunteered these were they were willing volunteers in the study but the training was <laughs> involuntary voluntary yeah. contractions oh, yeah okay so we put the stem on they were on the dynamometer the stem was set to go on for for 2 seconds it was 90 degree range of motion 90 degrees per second so it was up and down the stem would turn on they would do a knee extension up and back yeah so stem would turn off so i had it set up you know we had there was a rest interval in there so that cuz the fatigue would be so high with the stem but all the training was like that but the thing is in the muscle that's activated, when you use e stim with the right frequency, it's all out. That muscle is maximally contracted on the concentric and on the eccentric. So because the, the dynamometer lets you go up at, the, at a speed, you can't go any faster, any slower. It was set to 90 degrees, isokinetic, same speed, isovelocity. And then it came right back down no matter how hard you pushed. No person was stronger than the machine. So yeah. the forces were phenomenal. So the stimulus... Compared to voluntary training, at least in sort of the, the preliminary study that we, we borrowed that, um, that protocol from, produced on average about twice the muscle growth in an eight-week period training period than voluntary training. It's just a more potent stimulus. This was only like, I think, three sets twice a week is what we did Okay, um, like that. So more potent stimulus. Now, if you tried to do 10 sets or 15 sets that way, it would have been too much. Um, so we always got to remember that everything happens in the context. And this is important for this conversation of this, the way I see it, at least, this hormesis idea that you've got a dose response. More is better to a certain point where you have an optimal dose relative to recovery. And you go beyond that. It's too much. But in this case, eStem versus volunteer that eStem was more potent than the volunteer, at least over eight weeks. Yeah. That's what we use for my dissertation. And I had those had those data, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I I remember the biggest responder um, uh, he had an increase of quad cross sectional areas, either twenty one or twenty three percent, which is ridiculous, yeah, which is crazy, and that's like totally noticeable. It doesn't seem that much, but that's like oh my god, your quad blew up. Um, average was like five to ten percent, and there were some people who were down like two or three percent, right? So that is taking the psychological all out of it and with a really potent stimulus which is akin to training to failure in fact it's it's more potent than training to failure because when you do free weights the first rep's easy it's not effective well in this scenario actually with e-stim the first rep might be even more effective because you've got more force on the first rep the fatigue is less so in terms of force being produced tension in the muscle it's actually higher so all of those reps are effective so to speak and that's why with that given a small amount of volume it was a better stimulus and there's still variability there's still a gaussian distribution there's still a bell curve distribution in terms of how much people grow yeah so i suspect it's the same in terms of this idea of more volume with with reps in reserve versus training to failure um you know, and maybe the same amount of volume or less volume, you compare someone who tries to do eight sets all the way to failure, that might be beyond their point of optimal um, stimulus because they can't recover from it. They might be better with eight sets, three reps in reserve because they can recover from that. But they might be even better with four sets Mm. trained to failure because that's Mm. more potent. But they think, well, I did better reps in reserve than with, them to failure, it's like, well, yeah, because the, the total volume was beyond your optimal volume for recovering. Yeah, right. So the, the the thing is, is that you've really got. It's not just failure; it's volume and reps in reserve. And that's yeah. where this effective reps idea kind of comes in place. But all effective reps are not created equally. So the the rep before you fail is is perhaps more effective. But also has a greater impact on your recovery, right? So you've got then this trade off between stimulus and recovery. <laughs> so stimulus and fatigue, so to speak. I don't like to use that word fatigue, but stimulus and impact on recovery. So three reps reserve, two reps reserve. Maybe that's the best ratio. Hmm. That two or three reps reserve for some people. So they'd be better off gathering effective reps at two to three reps reserve and doing eight eight sets. Someone else might be better off because they've got good recovery ability. They can handle a higher stimulus, even though the impact and recovery for them is not so great if they do fewer sets closer to failure. So everyone yeah. has their own formulation, they have their own formula. But eventually, I think the thing in general is that many people eventually you get. Here's the thing. This is kind of the phenomenon that I see is like. If progressive overload is, is important, I think most people would agree there's got to be some sort of progressive overload there, either that you're driving it with training, and then I'll, I'll shut up because I know you have some thoughts, or your recovery is allowing you to progress. I think at some point along that line, there's going to have to be effort that will have to bring you closer to failure. And it could be that effort is maybe, maybe the effort is in more volume. Some people have done that and, and it's worked for them but you're going to somehow, I think in those sets, the quality of each set is going to have to be, be progressive so that you go closer to failure at some point in time. And that's going to a lot of times mean for many people, it happened to Dorian Yates happened to many people I've seen training over the years um, that they have to reduce their volume hmm. because they yeah. can now train harder. But in order, like, let's say you're, you're, you're stuck, you're, you're using. So your first exercise for chess is always incline press, right? And, Over the years, you've gone from 200 to 225 to 245 to 265, and you're always leaving three reps in reserve. And then you get stuck at 265, and you're always stopping two or three reps in reserve. You could get more reps, Mm. right? You 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 could go from a set of eight to a set of 10 or maybe even 11. But if you just stay at three reps in reserve, and you're stuck there for a year, and you tried changing your volume and everything else, like, You've got sort of one thing available. You can up the stimulus by training with fewer reps and reserve and then make sure you recover from that. Yeah. So that's a very viable solution to that. And I think that's something that people will many times will just have to learn how to train harder in that sense. And it may be that your three reps reserve two years before is different than your three reps reserve now as well. So you automatically do train harder. Yeah. And you'll still call it three reps reserve. So everyone's got their their own little formula, but I think in general, um there is something you're leaving in the tank mm-hmm. with not training to failure, and it doesn't have to be all your all your sets either
0: um, yeah, so that's yeah, how which
1: quarter two training
0: and that's the way I would train too, you know at this point yeah yeah i and I wonder you you said something, and we we should move on too because we had a bunch of other stuff um but I wonder. Yeah. You said something, you said, you know, maybe your three reps of reserve isn't what it was a couple of years ago. Well, the way I've been looking at it is, is we're continually redefining failure. I mean, mm-hmm. can you continually redefine three reps in reserve just like you continually defi- redefine failure? You know? I, I,
1: think, you, I think you need that, that, that post, Mark. You need to yeah. put the flag down by going to failure, at least on occasion. Yeah. Right? Um, like, I know... Uh, yeah, I would agree with like you, just, but I wanted to say it yeah. out loud to... To think it out loud.
0: I suppose you can to an extent. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. you. you, Yeah, I still am with you. You got to have the. you got to know what failure is.
1: Yeah. I mean, a a way to do that is like if someone just says, you know, training failure is just not my it's not my not my thing. I know it just becomes too much like the the benefit to, you know, the stimulus to keep fatigue ratio is just not great for me. Yeah. But I want to make sure I'm still, you know, being honest on my reps in reserve is you just like once every four, five, six weeks, you just go to failure. Just say, this is it. I'm going to just set a three sets with three reps in reserve Today, I've got one set to failure. I'm going to, I'm going to test myself. And that's what's done in the research studies as well. They redetermine one rep max. and adjust. Okay. Yeah. Oftentimes. Not always. A lot of times they just, they do it as traditional reps reserve tr- traditional Progressive overload they once they can get more than you know three sets in a certain rep range then they just bump the weight up you know but you can redetermine your one rep max as you go along or except, or your failure rep max so yeah. to be your rep max for a set um, all right well we got a bunch of stuff here we we do
0: have a bunch of questions and we had one in in particular I'll be really excited to hear you answer about skip's proposed training idea I don't know if you saw skip talk about that but I'll tell you about no. it. Uh, before okay. we, before we do, though, and somebody was asking me about the trip and stuff, so I'll, about my, my uh, jet lag. I'll tell you really quick that jet lag is still a real thing right now, uh, but oh. it's, it's coming together. Yeah, 14-hour time zone difference for two and a half weeks plus a 36-hour travel time, 25-hour flight, I believe it was, to get home. Whew, let me tell you, longest flight either of us took. Which is saying a lot because, you know, Victoria's done a lot of traveling herself in life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was crazy, but so worth it. Um, yeah. But before we get to our questions, our other questions, I wanted to ask you about IGF. Because I know, you know, a while back I told you, I was like, hey, Scott, uh, there's a lot of talk about IGF. And then Andrew and I talked about it. And then you started researching it. And now you've put together a 90-minute presentation that's going to be available at the Mountain Dog Diet website. So that'll be coming up real soon, but just as kind of a uh, the teaser of that, um, you know, is it all it's cracked up to be for bodybuilding, and um, and, and specifically, you know, IGF L R three. I'm really curious about that one because that's the one that most of us have available. There are guys out there yeah. that are using increlex including vigorous Steve. I saw, I saw a video. Yeah. He just got his hands on some, so I'll be curious to see what he has going on with that. Um, and, and we've talked to other people, you and I have known people that we've talked off the air who, who had gotten some, and uh, maybe it wasn't enough to really make a big difference. Cause I think he was splitting it with somebody else, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts overall on IGF and then specifically, uh, you know, on LR3 that is it, is it worth it for bodybuilding? Are we going to get, is it the magical key that we all
1: have hoped it to be? Huh. <laughs> Um, I'm sure where do I start? There's a lot of that presentation that I put together was just providing background information on IGF one, IGF two, the insulin like growth factor family, which includes insulin. Um, and part of what is needs to be understood, I think are just what are the sort of the roadblocks to this Ah. actually functioning in some way to produce muscle growth. One thing that's super important there, traditionally people will say there's six binding proteins that bind the IGFs. IGF-1 in particular. There's actually seven, and then there's several lower affinity binding proteins that are involved. These prevent someone, for instance, injecting exogenous IGF-1 and having it just go right to skeletal muscle. In fact, it's going to go everywhere. So those, there's multiple functions of those, but it's not like you can just, um, of course, there's serum hormone binding globulin for testosterone, but with testosterone, for instance, or gear, you can put in large amounts relative to the maybe seven to ten milligrams of testosterone that's produced and far exceed the binding ability that we have in our bloodstream to oh, find really? Out, right? really? Yeah. So yeah. So you'll get I mean you're just you've got just got so much in the system. Whereas from at least one study is able to find, humans are producing like ten milligrams of IGF one on a day on a daily basis more depending on how much you're eating if you're not eating very much it goes down it mainly gets down regulated when you diet but it does go up a little bit when you overfeed. of course someone's using growth hormone they're going to have igf1 that could double maybe triple Um, depends on their nutritional status but we've got all these binding proteins and if you think about 10 milligrams being what the body produces in total at least from my systemic levels here um, for someone to try to like just double that with exogenous igf1 I don't know how many thousands of dollars that would cost. It would cost a lot. Okay. Because, yeah, you're you're not getting the kind of doses. Um, Just as a side thought, too, there are um, dwarfs. So dwarfism can be caused by lack of growth hormone and also potentially lack of IGF-1 or lack of a functional IGF-1 receptor. So some forms of growth hormone are treated um, with IGF-1 if they don't have uh, a functioning... IGF one response. So, actually, what is done in some of these forms of growth or dwarfism is that they put in IGF one with IGF one binding protein three. Those oh, okay. things, two things are combined to huh. increase the total total amount of IGF one in your bloodstream because that's what IGF one binding protein three in particular does. Huh. Is lengthens the half life. Can we get? So,
0: can we get that?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I'm sure you can find. They're <laughs> prescribing it. But but whether that would work for our purposes. So the first half of the – what I talk about there is that we've got systemic IGF-1. I'll try to narrow myself here because there's so much there. And then what pretty much is – at least what's going on endogenously in the normal way in which IGF-1 is exerting its effects on muscle growth, it's a local phenomenon. Okay. Um, I go through a bunch of evidence sort of supporting this idea, but it's really a local – so it's IGF-1 being produced by skeletal muscle cells – after they've been injured or after uh, mechanical stress that we've in- invoked with the training and then you've got autocrine and paracrine action so that the igf-1 actually is released from the muscle cell and then it acts on itself or it acts on the local satellite cells okay. um, that would be paracrine it was acting as the kind of a local hormone that's what's going on in terms of igf-1 with muscle growth it's going to huh. have anabolic actions um, interestingly enough we have IGF-1 receptor, there's an IGF-2 receptor, and there's an insulin receptor. The IGF-1 receptor and the insulin receptor are both dimers. There's two pieces to make the fully functioning receptor. And there's also mixed um, heterodimers. So there's, there's receptors that are half IGF-1 receptor, half insulin receptor. No there's, kidding. A particular, there's a particular animal model where they, they knocked out the IGF-1 receptor. Most of the time when you do that, you don't get normal growth from the animals. Mm. But in this case, um, and this was in this particular mouse model, they did pretty much normal muscle growth. And interestingly enough, when they use compensatory hypertrophy, so they took out the soleus, they took out either the gastroc or the soleus, and they, in this case they looked at the plantaris muscle. That muscle grows really, really well when you do that. They walk around, the muscle compensates for the missing muscle. Yeah. It grew chest as well without a functional IGF-1 receptor as with one. No kidding. Matter. So that's just one interesting piece. But the thing that made me think of that study was that those animals, although they only knocked out the IGF-1 receptor, they also didn't have – they basically were diabetic. They didn't have functioning oh. functioning insulin receptor either. Okay. So one mechanism – I think I mentioned this in the talk, but one mechanism that's interesting is that insulin – IGF-1 binds the insulin receptor – and insulin binds the IGF-1 receptor. And in, depending on the individual, a lot of those receptors are a, a heterodimer. They're a half IGF-1, half insulin. In this case, when they knocked out the IGF-1 receptor, there were no really, there was no functioning, functional insulin sensitivity in these animals. Hmm. So that just tells me that at least in some cases, what insulin might be doing is acting through the through IGF-1 receptor. And vice versa, we know that IGF one increases could make you go hypo, absolutely. It binds to the insulin receptor, and it may just be binding to those heterodimer receptors that are half and half. So, so we've got um, <laughs> we've got situations where you can, for instance, you can in one really really cool study, they injected with a viral vector, um, uh, the gene for basically the gene for um, IGF one, so it would be overexpressed in that same plantaris muscle. So that muscle then became an overproducer of IGF-1. And just in doing that, it grew, huh. right? It got bigger because um, it had extra IGF-1, and it just, just got bigger. Because, so it turned on those growth processes, these were in growing animals. But well, on the other hand, um, one particular study, if you knock down systemic IGF-1 by like 80%, so the stuff in the blood that people measure is like, oh, I'm using growth hormone, my IGF-1 went up 100%. Like, okay, right. I, I've got good stuff. You can, in this in this animal model, you can drop that down to 20%, basically to starvation levels, and they grow muscle just as well when kidding, ladders. They grow muscle just as well. Or you can eliminate the insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor, the local receptor, and they grow muscle just as well under this particular stimulus. So the long and short of that is that IGF-1 does play a role. If you got more of it, you get better growth, right? But we've got a redundancy here, right? The system isn't relying upon just this one key igf1 for muscle growth it's not the only It's not the end all be all for muscle growth um so there's some you can have you can have people who are who are diabetics who can live for years that way yeah right? okay um so without igf1 um or a functioning igf1 receptor you can have without its effects then you can have muscle growth but if you have more of it it seems to help so now we'll go back to people wanting to use igf1 or yeah. igf1 um, first, if you goes into a skeletal muscle, it's going to stay there for some period of time. Um, it's going to have, depending on if you use IGF-1 or IGF-1 LR3 or DES-13 IGF-1, actually you have, um, a, a, it's, you have a decent half-life for those two, the LR3 and the DES, um, but it's reduced compared to IGF-1 in the serum really? at least. Oh yeah, okay. people kind of say the opposite. It's like in fact if yeah. you look it up on Wikipedia, yeah. you'll see it's, there's like a 34-hour hour half-life, which is re, which is and they if you follow that citation, it takes you another paper where they just say it and they don't cite it anywhere. Okay. So I found some papers where they actually actually there's some measurements there in animals in this case. Yeah. What interestingly enough happens the purpose of those drugs is to diminish binding affinity to the binding proteins so that you've got free IGF1. Okay. So Let's say you inject it into a muscle, you're still going to have a half-life and it's going to be around for a while, but it's going to simply diffuse out of that muscle, right? You've got a concentrated bolus there in the muscle, but this is this is water-based stuff. So you don't have, um, you don't have a situation like with a steroid where you've got a long ester that kind of holds it there in place, right? So as to how fast it leaves that site, don't know for sure. If hmm. you keep it there, that's what you want because you want elevated really? levels. In this particular study with where the viral vector, they increased expression. That was a continuous, constantly turned on overexpression of IGF-1 in that muscle. Hmm. And they documented that previously. So they injected right into that muscle. Yeah. And this is kind of what was, I won't say the word. This is There's a certain vaccination that was supposed to work this way. Oh, yeah. Um, but it didn't work, so, work out that way, apparently. But in this case, this this they've documented that you can inject in that muscle. And then you have local express, overexpression of IGF-1. But when you huh. inject one LR three or or DES one three, it's going to stay there for some period of time, but then it's going to diffuse away. Yeah, and then one of the issues, of course, with that, and I this has to be said, is IGF one is very very prominently involved with with cancer progression. Yeah, it's major um, stimulus for mitosis, and it's a major target for many types of of anti cancer strategies.
0: Absolutely. Right?
1: IGF-1 doesn't seem to be, or in growth hormone, they don't seem to be directly genotoxic, meaning they're not they're not going to turn on cancer that okay. wasn't there already. Um, the issue is if you have a pre-existing cancer that you might not know about yeah. and you inject IGF-1 in a muscle that you want to grow, that IGF-1 is going to diffuse probably relatively rapidly, um, yeah. but I don't know for sure. It doesn't bind to the binding proteins, but it does have a prolonged half-life actually so maybe it takes some time to get out of there um like i said there's tons of binding proteins so what exactly is going to and what's being bound to is somewhat of a mystery as far as what i could dig up but okay. it's going to go everywhere it's it's meant to not bind to those binding proteins and once it gets into the bloodstream it's going to make its way to all the tissues in the body it's going to be everywhere okay right so if you've got a tumor growing on your liver let's say or you've yeah. got uh, you've got prostate cancer that's on its way. The IGF one's going to make its way there. The DAS or the LR three, because it's meant not to bind those binding proteins. It's meant to be free. Organs. To bind to a receptor. Organs about like, everywhere. Yeah? To every place. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, okay. uh, IGF one gut or growth hormone gut or gear yeah. gut or you know whatever.
0: So um, they used to, the, yeah. you know, back in the day, they would say with IGF LR three to, you know, use it bilaterally, than whatever mm-hmm. muscle you trained. Um, I Mm -hmm. got away from that, but then I would do one day, one shot in that shoulder. And then the other day in that shoulder kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I Mm -hmm. still, it evened Mm -hmm. out. I just, one day I got it here. One day I got it there kind of thing. Um, But it it sounds like there is some reality to that, not as effective as like actual, like increlex IGF, but there is still going to be value to localized administration.
1: In an ideal sense, at least from the the literature, What's happening is the IGF-1 is being produced locally after you train. Which and I didn't know involved. that. That blows my yeah, mind. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that was that's, the first thing I, the,
0: that caught, yeah.
1: This is, see, this is what's interesting. If you look, for instance, at the growth hormone literature, yeah. um, we see that when you give growth hormone, it doesn't enhance muscle growth. Um, in younger but not older individuals, at least from the one study that was able to dig up humans in this case, you give growth hormone and you get a IG, local IGF-1 production. So that's, mm. this is all It's called the somatomedin hypothesis. It's been around for forever. So during growth and development especially, growth hormones stimulates the liver to produce IGF-1. Okay. As well as bone and muscle and other tissues. So I did not know that. Release. Yes. Um, yeah. That's why a lot of times if you don't have a functioning IGF-1 receptor, you don't get normal growth. Okay. Um, it, so, um, the growth hormone used to be called somatomedin C, now yeah. it's growth hormone. That was what the, you look up really look, some of the, some older studies from like the nineties and before they just called it somatomedin C. So the somatomedin hypothesis is, is that growth hormones effects on growth and development. Your skeleton, et cetera, et cetera, has been a growing individual, juvenile or an infant child, et cetera, is mediated by IGF-1. So if you, if you knock out IGF-1 growth hormone doesn't has have its effect on growth. That makes sense. So you can be an IGF one dwarf, so to speak. So you don't have effective IGF one. Maybe you have a defect in that gene for IGF one, or you have a defective receptor, and you won't get growth. In this animal model, they end up having pretty close to normal muscle growth, um, just just developmentally. But they also got normal muscle growth when they when they did the compensatory hypertrophy. So the thing is, and I have a slide or two where I go into this is you've got the satellite story, the satellite cell story that I've talked about so much right so as muscles grow um, <coughs> satellite cells are there they they're activated um, they undergo mitosis and then they differentiate so then they can become new nuclei in the growing muscle cell and the muscle cell needs more nuclei according to this nuclear domain theory to get bigger yeah and igf1 is involved there um in both sort of both of those stages igf2 is involved there as well We've also got hepatocyte growth factor that's involved there. We've got numer- numerous other growth factors that are involved or, or my, myogenic differentiation factors that are involved in the cells. So it's a very, very complex phenomenon. So, And there are numerous peer points in that progression of, of satellite cell activation where IGF-1 is involved, but there are also other things that are involved. So um, it's sort of like there's a backup strategy in terms of that progression because it's an okay. important mechanism of adaptation. That's why it's likely that if you don't have insulin-like growth factor one that is working because the receptor is missing, you can still get muscle growth. Um, There's one particular study, too, suggesting that um, you can get muscle growth with um, just, you need the IGF-1 in order to get an increase in satellite cells. So there's something to say for that, too. But here's the problem. You inject the IGF-1, Also, when you have a stimulus, training, IGF one is produced, but local binding proteins are also produced. Okay. So, so it's kind of like, it's sort of like, okay, we stimulated, release the hounds, right? The hounds are on a leash, Ah. right? And the leash are the binding proteins, and those moderate to what extent IGF one is going to be active. The idea in general is, it's is that the binding protein prevents full activation it prevents it from binding to the receptor okay however it's more complicated than that it's not that easy <laughs> some of those some of those binding proteins have their own actions they can either inhibit as i just sort of mentioned or they can potentiate the act the action.
0: okay that's what i wondered if, one okay mm-hmm. yeah
1: there there's also interesting enough and this is i just found some cool so when in the cell when insulin-like growth factor one is being produced before it's Exocytose from the cell before it goes out to do to act on the cell itself, which is an interesting thing, right? Because all the cells are all kind of communicating. So the cell produces IGF1, which is released and then comes back and acts on itself. So it's an autocrine function. So it's it, it releases its own growth factor, which comes back and acts on IS and acts on the local cells. So they're all they're all the neighbors are releasing their hounds. Yeah. at the same time all the muscle cells so there's some coordination <laughs> in the hound hunt but they're on leashes let's make some kind of electronic leash. that's the, the binding proteins okay also and this is another potential for variability because this is the main thing with igf1 is does it work or does it not there's also something called an e-protein that gets produced with igf1 so the e-protein so it's kind of like 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 it's like you, you, you your dog is a German Shepherd, but also there's a little Chihuahua that gets gets comes along when you release them, and you're like, well, look at the German Shepherd going out and raising cane, but there's also a Chihuahua, and the Chihuahua itself can produce the E proteins have an effect as well, independent, and people don't even measure, pay attention to that. So normally you do release, so maybe the Chihuahua like goes under the little bushes, you know, and if you're hunting rabbits, it cheers the the German Shepherd can't go there, but that's important that has its own effect on muscle hypertrophy um, which Holy interestingly crap. enough
0: we're not even measuring that we don't we're not we not aren't measuring, measuring that any of this stuff except for just the binding like,
1: protein so, yeah we so we check so igf easy.
0: we check our like serum igf and gh levels right. that's it you know what i mean
1: yeah so if you inject igf1 lr3 or what have you you've got differential for instance um igf1 lr3 does not bind as well to the IGF-1 receptor as IGF-1, Incrolux. Okay. Okay. That's what good you, to know. What you see, it's, it's interesting because what you see is in in vitro, when they have it in, in cells that produce these binding proteins, and then you add to that culture IGF-1 and compare it to IGF-1-LR3, what you see then is that LR3 works better in turning on mitosis, doing all the things it does to these cells. Because it's not getting bound up. Because they're not getting bound up, right? Dang. Um, Okay. Yeah. Wow. But but on the other hand, there's one particular, it was with chick embryo cells. And those cells, for whatever reason, they don't produce the binding proteins. And there, there was no advantage of IGF-1 versus IGF-1 VP3. Okay. uh, LR3, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's because the binding proteins, there was no advantage to the LR3 because there are no binding proteins that were binding up its competitor, IGF-1, in this particular study. I also found interestingly enough there's two other things the the variability I'm sorta of spilling a little of the beans here, but I'm having fun with this, so I'm just <laughs> roll
0: it. Well we can stop um, at any point. We have like twenty questions too, but I, I'm fascinated by okay. this as well. And it's I'm gonna have really to cool. sign back up over at Mountain Dog because I have to hear the whole thing. And I hope you guys yeah, do I definitely too. Definitely
1: would. Definitely would. Um so I found like this variability story. So When you have animal studies, you know, those animals, they're all from the same – all the rats, they're very, very genetically homogeneous, right, from the same litter. There's going to be some variability. But when you're looking at humans, you've got a whole different deal. You've got a lot of heterogeneity. That's why we see responders, -responders, non-responders, just like we're talking about in the context of reps and reserve. We've got psychological variability. We've got biological, physiological variability. There's one particular study where they um, were measuring – Tissue dialysis, so tissue measures of IGF-1 production post-exercise. And they measured at the beginning and the end of a training program. This was out of Bill Kramer, a guy named Nindell who's done a lot of this stuff. There's labs kind of worked together on this study. And um, they found, as you would expect, that IGF-1 was being produced in response to the training stimulus. And the funny thing is, normally, they don't measure IGF-1 Um because it's all bound up to these proteins. What they do is they measure IGF-1 M- mRNA. So the signal for the genetic signal to produce IGF-1 in the cells. But you can't, when you try to measure IGF-1, like it's all bound up, right? You can't measure it.
0: Yeah, okay. It's not
1: free. But this case, they were measuring the, the, um, the dialysis, so the interstitial levels, what's going on outside the cells, what's been released, and supposedly doing its deal. And there was no difference pre and post training. But what they found at the beginning of training um, is that there was there was a pretty homogeneous response in terms of what they measured. But at the end of training, there was a highly variable response. Right? So some part of the something happened variably, beginning of training versus the end of training. Part of the training adaptation was a variability, was 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 the evolution of variation in IGF one, free IGF one in the tissue. Yeah, and they and they got to have another study coming out because they didn't even report the muscle growth and of this kind of stuff. So I want to know what I'm interested to see when because this study which was just published in 2022, is uh-huh. if that variability in tissue IGF-1, which was only evident in the trained state, was predictive of muscle growth over the course of the training. And we have things like variation in protein synthesis. Yeah. That, that predicts training. Only if you measure it after two or three weeks of training when that, when that um, initial muscle soreness is gone after the repeated bout effect has taken place. So maybe we've got a, a situation here where part of what can determine whether someone's a responder or non-responder is the extent to which their local IGF-1 system gets upregulated, and they get a better local IGF-1 response. We know mm-hmm. that in terms of other growth factors. We've seen that in other studies. I think this study may actually confirm that as well. So, um, but w- what we don't know is like maybe there's an alteration and the binding proteins get released from, those, from, those, um, uh, from the mus- those muscle cells that are being trained. Maybe, you know, maybe something to bind up those binding proteins instead of IGF-1, you know, would make sense. Like that, and that may be the issue with some people. They get plenty of IGF-1, but their binding proteins are excessive. Or maybe they've yeah. got the wrong ones because there's, there's so many of them that are released from muscle. And well. that could
0: explain when we've talked about how some people are responders and some people are non-responders mm-hmm. to, well, that would be the growth hormone. But in in mm-hmm. turn, you're getting an IGF-1 release from that. And from what you're saying, the growth hormone isn't what's doing the growth. The IGF is. So when we talk about like who's a good responder to growth hormone could we say that mm-hmm. a possibility may be related to what their binding proteins are for igf Absolutely. yeah yeah
1: so so the growth hormone does stimulate local igf1 release at least in young people this study not in older older individuals so it won't happen um, so for maybe for me.
0: Some, you're saying like for you or you're not I, that old yet. yeah no no oh, yeah no oh I mean, no when i'm you probably say, getting there Okay. you're young
1: you're young still in the research context <laughs> why okay I'll you're a whipper i'll take it i'll take it <laughs> young McNabb. yeah um so so yeah to the extent to which growth hormone your your genes your are green for the growth hormone receptor exon 6 whether it's there or not i think is the, the thing that's variable in the growth hormone gene or maybe the gh that you're using is a farm grade is a non-farm grade right you know are you how many fragments are there, you know, has it been all the modifications that can happen in, in, packaging or in processing and then, and then sending the thing, um, that to the extent to which that impacts local IGF-1 is interesting. Okay. That can variable as well. Another study, and, I'll, and this is, these are the two that I dug up and this was an interesting one. So they took muscle samples from, they were all women who were undergoing, I think, bariatric surgery. So they were getting, um, like, uh, um, a bariatric surgery done where they, they tie off the stomach, um, gastric bypass surgery. Maybe they could also put a ligament in there, a ligature in there, Some, something of that sort. And they, they, they biopsy I think, the rectus abdominis muscle. And they cult- cult- cultured those muscle cells. So they created a, a muscle culture from the satellite cells that were there. And then they exposed those, and they compared the effect. And, of course, these are muscle cells that are going to produce the binding proteins. They're fully functional. They compared IGF-1 to IGF-1 LR-3. Okay. And all the animal research was suggest that IGF-1 LR-3 is going to work better because it yes. doesn't bind to those binding proteins. I say right? yes that's-
0: because that's more affordable. Like most of it, right. most everybody here, I think yeah. Chris up here was like, oh, my God, but please don't tell me that this is the best thing because I'll never afford Your yes name like come s- a no here because – Oh, no. <laughs> um, what, they, what, they,
1: what they found is that um, there was no difference in the human cells. Okay. Yeah, huh. and, but it was highly variable. And I, I pulled the quote. It's like they just sort of mentioned this. It was highly variable among individuals. So some people there was a difference and some people there wasn't. And this had to do with the biology of their muscle cells.
0: Okay. And the way
1: in which they respond and the way in which they produce binding proteins yeah. or the, the constitutive binding proteins that were being produced and the way huh. in which they did or didn't bind up the IGF-1.
0: I would love to see a study or or not really a study, but I'd love to do, see some experiments where we took somebody that's like a bodybuilder who is like, yeah, I've gotten my best gains from growth hormone and IGF. mm -hmm. I'd love to see, get their binding proteins tested versus another guy who says, "Ah, I didn't get anything out of it. So many things,
1: you know, the thing, the thing too is like, um, like systemic IGF one is, is responsive to growth hormone. It's also, it can also responsive to testosterone and those things you mean, synergize? What do you mean responsive? You get more, you, you get more IGF, IGF one, obviously with growth hormone. Um, okay. And and testosterone can also increase it as well. Oh. And your okay. diet can increase it. Oh yeah so, yeah yeah. So you take someone and and here's like another thought that I threw out there. I'm just I'm sure dumping all the beans here, but there's still a lot in this in this talk. But the other thought um, is that. If systemic does matter, because systemic is varying according to your nutritional status, especially when you diet down, your IGF-1 will go down. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because that IGF-1, that systemic is is going in and and regulating um, energy turnover, the anabolic state of the cells, right? So one of the things that IGF-1 does on a whole body level is it turns down anabolism. So you're not trying to build up tissue when there's no calories, there's no nutrition available. It's responsive to both protein availability and, and energy availability. And it goes down substantially when like, if you, in one study I found they fasted for like five days and it was down to like 40% of normal after five days. Okay. And it took a while to come back up. Um, and it was variable depending whether they had protein or energy, protein and energy energy was better, was better. <coughs> but if you overfeed and eat excess of calories, you do get an increase in IGF one. So you have someone, let's say, um, who normally think, ah, systemic IGF one doesn't really make a difference. In the studies with you know regular training, there's no correlation between the IGF one elevation you get after training um, and muscle growth, right? There's there's something that ha- happens there, but it's not like this is what's causing muscle growth. It's that local IGF one that matters. Okay, so now we're now we're getting into a, a natty versus enhanced type of thing, and this was this is just a wild ass guess type of theory that I that I thought might be pl- might be part of what people are experiencing. But you take someone now who is your typical IGF-1 user, they've already got everything else in play, right? They're eating in excess. They've got a caloric excess, which is going to elevate IGF-1 to some degree systemically. They've got 10 IUs of farm-grade growth hormone in there or five or whatever they're using growth hormone. That's elevating IGF-1. And they've got two grams of cure in there. That's going to probably elevate their IGF-1. So now maybe at some point you start to get to some threshold level where the igf1 levels systemically in your blood relative to your binding protein or your your total binding capacity and all the binding proteins that are there is getting to where now you may have some threshold level where your tissue levels in the muscle that you're training is starting to supersede the binding protein capacity there and you are actually elevating local igf1 in the muscles that you've trained because you got all this other stuff just increasing IGF one all over in your body, yeah. And then you add IGF one to it, extra, and you go with a like a high like you know, I've seen people suggest you got to use like five five milligrams, which is oh, about half the. Oh, you're
0: kidding me! That's,
1: that's a lot. That's I saw that suggested um, on a board. I won't say any, any, any names, but it, and it, when you look at ten milligrams a day being your endogenous production, yeah, we're trying to you know it's not like. If you produce, you know, ten milligrams of, of testosterone a day, right? Well, right. If you can black just just putting in you put in a put in that's that's a hundred milligrams a week. You go on go on a gram a week or ten times above that. Yeah, if you've way superseded the normal operating range for testosterone, but to way supersede the normal operation operating range for IGF one, you'd have to you'd have to spend a thousand dollars a day on Increlex or something like that, right? Yeah. So the idea with these dwarf studies is that they're just trying to they're just trying to replenish, ah. IGF one that's completely missing. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not working for whatever reason. So they and they can kind of do that. I don't know. If, I should look closely what the I had to. I was running out of time. I, this thing was ninety minutes. It was supposed to be fifteen. So <laughs> I, I was like, I, I had to make it a two month thing. Yeah. So I had to eventually just stop and just get it out. Yeah. Because um, the month coming to an end. But my thought would be you might be someone who's like their chest, you're getting to that threshold where now you're increasing tissue levels and levels in a way that where IGF-1 can make a difference yeah. relative to all these other players in this sequence of events where IGF-1 is involved. And then you add IGF-1 to it, then you might get something new. But you also could be – now you've also increased IGF-1 levels in all those other tissues too more, more than likely because it's going to diffuse throughout the body. Um, so now you also you maybe also incrementally don't know incrementally increase the risk of a cancer that hasn't yet come about. But yeah, may be more likely to because your liver's taxed your your um, your prostates you know get a, a nice that's right. Rhonda
0: Patrick suspected that she had said yeah. she thought that long-term use by athletes may eventually cause a cancer that you wouldn't have otherwise had down the road she's like we don't know but 10 years down the road she said i could see it yeah. being a possibility
1: the evidence for instance with um i don't know this literature there was a nice review that i found so i just kind of looked into this i said i had to eventually kind of shut it down but like with acromegaly patients who have elevated growth hormone for their entire life yeah they don't have seem to have a higher incidence of cancer but when they do get cancer it seems like it progresses more rapidly I bet that's kind of the bottom line. So it's not like the IGF one is going to cause cancer, but let's say you have a cancer that you might've caught early. That's the thing with cancer is catching it at an early stage. Yeah. And you know, you're pushing and you're gaining weight, you know, and everything else and all your, all your focus on, cause now you've got all your, all your eggs in that basket is growing and growing Yeah, and a cancer, you know, does come about, maybe it's brought on by the other things that you're doing. And IGF-1 is there that just, it just hurries up the progress of the cancer, the progression of the cancer. So now yeah. you could end up, not say with the cancer, and she might be right too, like, you know, years and years of IGF-1, there aren't many people who are doing that because it's so expensive, but yeah, 10 years, we don't have, we don't have those values. And I have to go, you could compare what two milligrams of IGF-1 per day would, would be like compared to someone with, with acromegaly, but it in and of itself doesn't seem to be genotoxic. It doesn't evoke a new cancer, but it certainly is very likely to cause one to progress more rapidly, from what I understand um, in looking at the literature. So, Okay.
0: Well, listen, do you got time for some questions, Scott? Because people are sure. asking us a bunch of questions. Okay. Um, let's see. So you mentioned the jet lag thing already. I'll just start from the top here. Matt Blevins had asked. Oh, so this was he, he asked us all the way at the beginning. If mm. he's still with us, um, he said you brought bought the uh, hydro. Well, he says hydro powder It was a hydrolyzed beef collagen from true nutrition. That's what I use. Like I said before, use our code. Think it's it's really too. I've compared their pricing to what you can get in the grocery store. It's the best price. Like it's flat out the best price. What they end up doing in the grocery store products is they give you those little <laughs> tiny scoopers and they tell you, here's a serving. Versus the True Nutrition. Yeah, yeah, it's 10 grams yes. uh, versus a scoop from True Nutrition is 30. I've been using 20, by the way, now. Um, I met somebody at the Olympia who was with Rick Collins, actually, and he had done mm. research on, uh, I, I think, like his whole dissertation was about collagen. And he had oh. said that 15, 20 grams is the, like the sweet spot that everybody really could benefit from. So I backed it down. I was using 30 per Dante's suggestion after I tore my supraspinatus and I did that for Mm. like a year and a half, but I've backed it Mm -hmm. down to now to like a half a scoop, two thirds of a scoop. But um, we talked about this a little bit before. So you're getting a lot of glycine from hydrolyzed beef collagen and it's not going to be as it's not going to have the same complete amino acid chain for muscle growth, but if you were to use that with food, you may be able to then get aminos from that food to make up for it. Right.
1: Yeah. You can make a complete protein if you add that to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would but kind yeah, of just protein.
0: He asked if you kind of just protein. I'd say, yeah, you kind of just protein.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you're thinking on a meal by meal basis mm-hmm. and let's say, you know, you wake up and that's your one protein source for, you know, You wake up fast you throw it in your coffee then you don't eat anything for three or four hours that's not going to be an adequate protein source to turn on protein synthesis or or maintain it in the way that a a complete protein source would be if you're mixing that in you know with other protein sources throughout the day then that would add in um so there's sort of it's you're totally right in what you're saying and total protein is important and you want to have high quality but but let's say um Let's say that half your protein was whey protein and half your protein was collagen protein. And if you added that all together, you would have a certain amount of essential amino acids. And you might actually eventually eventually at some point when you mix in more collagen protein, degrade the protein um, biological value, the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score eventually goes down. If you have yeah. three quarters collagen, but if, you're, if you just have that one window where it's just the collagen protein, that's not the best protein all in all, it probably is not going to make, it's not like all of a sudden you're going to start shrinking if you do yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, it might, you know, the thing I wonder uh, is the thing about the collagen protein is you can follow those amino acids. Although I think a study came out recently that suggested that those, as other studies have, have demonstrated that those collagen based amino acids end up in, in connective tissue, mm-hmm. um, collagen fibers, that, that, that isn't necessarily the case. I'll see if I can find that. I saw oh, it. Oh, really? I think I put it in my. I think I put it in my database yet. Yeah, I it came across somewhere. Um, but maybe, maybe to some degree, you need a background of high quality protein to just turn on protein synthesis in general in those tissues. You're going to supply the specialized building blocks in terms of the collagen protein, but you also want to have some essential amino acids in there. So, like, I mean, here's a supplement idea for someone. <laughs> Have, I give away all my good ideas, right? But maybe you add essential amino acids to a collagen protein. There you so go. You fill out the, the protein digestibility correct the amino acid score, make it bring it up to 100, or the biological value. However, you want to look at it. And now you've got in a, a complete protein that's collagen based. So it's your collagen protein that you would include, you know, after your workout if you wanted to, if you'd feel like you need that for an injury recovery or what have you.
0: Yeah, but I just moved mine to with my first meal now, so. You know, we, yeah, and I've got you go. protein That's perfect. In that. All there right. you
1: go. Problem solved.
0: So here was a question that I thought would be interesting to talk to you about. Um, wanted to know your opinion on Skip trying to work out every other week. So here's what he has going on. Uh, you know, he he took a long break. Uh, I think he had, he had pulled something. When he got back mm-hmm. to the gym, he felt like a million bucks. And he likes to train hard. Skip doesn't Mm -hmm. want to compromise with the way he trains. So he was thinking to himself, what if I were to do what I like, train the way I like training and train for a week and then take an Mm -hmm. entire week off and then come back? Because he said every time he's ever come back after taking a break, he feels like a million bucks. Joints are Mm -hmm. better. I can relate to all that, you know? Yeah. And and pumps are good. Workouts are the best. So I'm, I'm sure knowing Skip that he's probably... He's, he skips a guy who will do a little bit too much versus a little bit uh-huh. too little. You know, right, I'm sure right. he's always been in a like a perpetually overtrained state to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. And those breaks are probably been great for him. So now Ken, you know, what do you think about this idea? My main thought is this. I feel like skip so 100 percent when he's on. But then he's is 100 percent off when he's off. Like He doesn't follow a diet or anything. So I think just knowing him, the biggest challenge is going to be still eating in a regimented bodybuilder way, still being healthy on that week off. But if he can do right. that, which I'm excited to see if he can do that, he's going to try yeah. this after Swiss, by the way. Uh-huh. OK, you know, this, this is going to be his game plan um, for, let's let's say from from a muscle growth point of view. What do you think of this?
1: There's there's some scientific evidence, and, and like it, obviously he has his empirical evidence. I I think it could very po- possibly work. The thing the thing I can imagine happening, just sort of go- thinking globally now, is that it's going to work for a while, and then eventually, um, whatever whatever fatigue he's recovering from that's accumulated over the weeks, months, and years beforehand, eventually he'll be recovered, and that may not work as well. Oh, so what's what's yeah? So what's, what's interesting because there's a couple bunch of things that have come into my head, of course, but. One of which is that we have this, the satellite cell idea, too. Um, this is why I think many pros, the best, best, best bodybuilders in the world, they train with the bro split you know, with the week's rest in between as opposed to the higher frequency because you turn on that satellite cell progression, it takes five, six, seven days to be complete. So he may be able to set um, those adaptations in motion during the one week and then literally, um, you know, depending on what his training regimen is, so let's say he does like trains everything twice in one week. You know, I think like he's going to train everything
0: once. I thought it was everything just once. once. Okay, yeah, I think so, so. He'll
1: have then. He'll have then two weeks in between. Um, there's I a could there's be a wrong, study out of. But I totally yeah, think. yeah, yeah. I mean, the the question is then, what's the optimal um, time in between? Like up to a week works really well for lots of people, right? Yeah, so, some of the best people because this satellite cell story kind of makes sense of that. There's also this study out of Norway. It was a um, Blood flow restriction study, and they trained the bejesus out of uh, like as a power lifter for like seven or ten days. I can't remember the protocol. And then they gave him like a week off, and then he came back and did it again. And then they just followed, they did muscle biopsies, and they found like a delayed muscle growth that happened like 20 days after the last training session. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But they trained like it was twice a day, blood flow restriction training, I think is what they did. Yeah, it's really, really brutal. It's something you never do. So they intentionally sort of produced what if they went much longer, it would have definitely been overtraining. Yeah. But a a delayed hypertrophic adaptation that takes weeks to manifest has been documented in the literature.
0: No kidding. So that's
1: that's out there. Yeah. And at least in this case study. And I this is what I see with with fortitude training. This is why I, you know, put some periods of time and no training in there is, um, all of that's based on auto-regulation. The way I, you know, I, I set up the blast and progressive blast, intensive cruise. Um, you know, Dante had blasting cruise. I just stole his terms and gave him credit. right? Um, and the idea is that you have to be able to auto-regulate and know when to stop. So how far have you pushed? Are you, are you in a functional overreaching situation where if you stop and then you recover enough that you will functionally overreach and come back stronger and bigger? Hmm. Or are you in a non-functional overreach? And we didn't actually overtrain technically, but when you, regardless of how you, how much you recover, you just never come back stronger. You just, you just went too hard, or whatever the whatever other your dietary, recovery circumstances were, you're just not going to come back stronger and better. So it's non-functional; didn't didn't serve your purposes. Um, And there's overtraining where you just went too far, and then you just need to take a break. Most if you really overtrain, you just need to stop. Yeah, but that's all based on being able to auto-regulate and just give some perspective, like with, with Dante, with true, with, um, DC training, he would just tell people, and this is smart. I really think it's smart. It's like, Hey, if you feel like you just need two weeks off, take two weeks off. Don't do anything. That would work for some people. Otherwise he would suggest, you know, reducing your, your weights, like I think 30% and leaving several reps in reserve and just go light training for Hmm. a couple weeks. And what I was kind of finding is that it was highly variable. Some people would come back better, some people would come back and like, ah, they're, they're screwed. Mm. Um, there was a, there was a study that just came out where they had two groups and they trained them, I think for, um, one group trained for nine weeks, progressive overload and took a complete week off. It was a deload study. And then they trained for another nine weeks and the other group just trained straight through. And in some of the measures, I'm not going to say the wrong thing, but basically that week off did not do them, do them, didn't help. Okay. They ended up lagging behind in terms of their adaptations. And okay. that's what happens sometimes with DC training. People would take two weeks off and do nothing. They're like, shit, they were, they come back weaker than they were at the end of their last blast. Mm. They take half of the next blast to come back. But that wow. it was just, that was an a, inappropriate deload. Yeah. And Ken, of anybody I can think of who's been at it, you know, like as long as I have, we've both been training like 40 years, you know, right? Ken's, yeah. Ken's exactly six months older than me. For what's Is right. he really? He's exactly six months older. Yeah. Um, uh so i kind of know his birthday you know because it's it like <laughs> a happier off of mine yeah but, yeah uh, he's going to be able to auto regulate and know if this is going to work because he's got the experience to do it and he knows how he trains so if there's anyone who's going to be able to pick out what seems like a strange strategy like that that might work for a while and he'll know when it stops working because this is this is very much like a, like what happens with skip loading he's used to seeing this pattern you do a skip load and I don't want to bastardize this. I think I got it right this time, but he does a skip load. Everyone gains a bunch of weight. You know, that's the thing. Your weight goes up. You come back on a Monday after a Sunday skip load and, you know, your weight's up by five pounds. And then what he does is he watches to see over the course of the week when you get back to your previous weight. And then you want to get, if you're dieting down, of course, you want to get a little bit below that. Yeah. Right. And pro- so progressively. So if you overdo the skip load, or you never get back to your baseline. And then you do the skip load. Well, your weight on average is going up. Right. It should be end up going down over, over time. So each skip load should be be engaged with, you typically think it just does time, yeah. maybe the macronutrient, but he, how, how he engages that is based on how your weight tapers back down week by week. So he's got years and years, decades, of watching his weight and his strength and everything um, vary on a weekly basis because he's doing this with skip loading. So if anyone's going to know that a one week on, and one week off, works really well it's going to be skip because he's done that he's been injured enough times to have seen that and he's so used to to framing things in terms of of week-long changes in this way Uh, that's that's the that's the lens he's using to view his training and his diet and everything that he's been you know he's an expert with with that perspective yeah that magnifying glass on training so i can totally see it working for him as long as he's pushing really really hard and maybe even kind of like a function of overreaching during those weeks, and then we take mm-hmm. the week off. I had I had two experiences. Um, well, I had one that I documented with the I when I truly overtrained, but the one the one that was sort of the most the most salient in my mind was when I was uh, in high school. Um, and I think I've just told talked about this before on this podcast. I was in high school, and um, I did everything that we were supposed to do. So, like the summer before my junior year, I was on the swim team. So I had swim practice, um, and I was doing this weight training regime, which I talked about, which was just asinine. It was three times a week, full body, 98 sets total per workout. You would did, We did every exercise in the gym. I found it. I just dug out a bunch of stuff. I was cleaning up my house. I found a whole bunch of stuff, and I saved this. And you would pick a weight you could get eight reps with, and then the next – and you wait one minute, and you, the next set you could get seven or eight reps, but not, like, more. And yeah. then the next whatever. So two out of three sets were up to failure. So I was doing – you know, 65, 66 sets to failure three oh, times a week. Full body. It was squats, squats, leg presses, hack squats, knee extensions, hamstring curls, <laughs> seated calf raises, standing <laughs> calf raises, donkey calf raises, pull downs, bent over rows, bent over, bent over Smith machine rows, cable rows. Oh, my God. Pull downs to the front, pull downs to the rear. Like it's 98 <laughs> sets of every exercise.
0: Literally, right? yeah. Every machine in the every, gym. Some of them used the whole twice.
1: Whole yeah. I was the only one who did it. You had to go in there. The gym was open from 8 this was in the summertime times open from 8 to noon i okay. had to be there right at 8 so to i get could it finished? finished by noon <laughs> to get it done <laughs>
2: oh my god have to warm
1: up sometimes you know and it's 98 sets so you yeah. think 98 so there's 98 minutes in between and plus like let us say you know uh, roughly a minute for the sets so that's you know that's like that's like 200 minutes yeah right and that's, that's 3 right. hours right there plus right. you know look time in between so i had the bus to bust ass and then after that after that i would go we had agility drills to do so i you know, do karaoke and sprints and zigzags and form running. And I was on both offense and defensive. So I would do the running back drills and I do the linebacker drills. And then there was some optional drills that I would do, of course, because, hey, why not? And then there was an endurance run and you could do an optional longer one. So I would go and like run for like run two or three miles. Mm-hmm. It was extra. And I didn't eat anything. I get up in the morning. <laughs> oh, God, you do
0: all this fasted.
1: <laughs> and I go home and, and then I eat and then I go to swim practice. Oh, man. And then I go to pay pass- passing league so like an hour and a half of running around
0: dude that's not so i did
1: that all summer long right yeah. and then we went into our season we went through two a days which are just brutal and then we did our first we had our first um uh uh first game and then the second game i got injured right oh. so totally knocked out thigh bruise and here's what i'm getting to so i was like oh way way overtrained, probably coming back yeah. And I got injured and I got sick at the same time. I got totally laid up. I had <laughs> I had a thigh bruise and it being a myositis so, oh, so I had literally a chunk of bone that developed the hemorrhaging was so bad in my quad oh, and I geez. tried to over I overdid the rehab and eventually there was a disc of bone in my quad you could see it in X-ray. Oh my god. But 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 during so we we had transitioned during that first week of the season to like a maintenance um lifting regime. Uh-huh. So it was just like like two sets on an incline press. And they like kind of a um, pyramid system, like you go with one, you do 135, 155, 175, and they like, you know, 10 to 12 reps and then eight to 10 reps or whatever. Just a real basic thing. And I'd say I was doing like 175 on incline. You know, I was, I weighed like 160 and I was an average size kid. And I was doing that. I knew where I was because I'd done it a few times and then I missed the whole week. I didn't do anything. I was super sick. I laid on my butt for an entire week. I felt awful. I was in pain, yeah. although I was trying to rehab my leg. I did nothing. And then I limped back in and I couldn't play. I couldn't run, you know. And I limped back in and I, well, at least I can do the upper body. And I went from like 175 to like two and a quarter or 205. And I went from like 10 reps to like 24 reps. Oh, no kidding. What is going on? I uh-huh. like my performance once. All I did was rest. And I didn't yeah. eat. I didn't do anything. I just had a total super rebound. Cause I just way over. I stopped the swimming, I stopped yeah. all the running, I stopped the 98 sets three times a week, and I was sick. It was the worst situation, but I just rested. I just rested. So I wonder too.
0: Because you know, Skip's mm-hmm. not a younger guy anymore, right? So it, it's yeah. like, we'll see, we'll see. But you know, the way he is too, like, if he's going to try something, he's going to commit to it. So yeah, I, I think at this point, he's it's like, it's going to happen. So I'll look forward yeah. to seeing know what goes on with that we do have a bunch more here um what about uh, somebody just asked about uh dealing with loose skin um do we have any tips on uh loose skin from weight loss it's something i i've seen it a bunch and i will tell you Mm -hmm. this man i've seen people whose skin has tightened up miraculously like even when it's been Mm -hmm. loose like like a guy who was 300 pounds and then he gets into like literally contest shape, and mm-hmm. the longer that you stay lean, the the better opportunity you have for that fat to or for that skin to tighten back up. And sometimes I've seen what has literally yeah. been like folds mostly go away. Maybe it's not a 100 percent, but it mm-hmm. mostly I've seen it mostly go away. In some people. I guess a lot of the yeah. factors are going to be how fat were you before? Like, was this an all your mm-hmm. life thing or did you just go on a bender for a year because you got a divorce and now you have loose skin because right. you put on a bunch of weight and now you're lean again? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a factor. And then age is a factor, you know, like the elasticity age age of your factor. skin. Right. As you age, isn't going to be yeah. as good. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, those things are those are things we can't change. I would say hydration is probably a key factor for our skin. Right.
1: hmm. Yeah. I've wondered, too. Actually, i wondered about college and speaking college and protein. <laughs> There's different types of collagens. We um, could go into all of that, and some are more. Um, you find them more so in skin. I think. Yeah. I think true nutrition does have like a complete collagen. Yeah, the like the that, hydrolyzed
0: beef collagen, I believe, is the one that Dante suggested. And I'll tell you what, man. Uh-huh. When my so I told my mom about it, and now keep in mind her protein intake was pretty low to begin with. So right. just getting that in was probably a huge benefit. She uses a scoop a day, 29, 30 uh-huh. grams. And uh-huh. after a few months, the people at her, her like her, she does like a jazzercise class or something. And uh-huh. the, the women at her class who are younger than her, she, you know, she's she's an older lady now. She's grandma. Mm-hmm. She's in there with women that are in their 30s. And they started saying, Betty, what are you doing different? You know, what, uh-huh. what's going on? She started seeing people in the grocery store say, what what are your beauty? You know, what are your what's your beauty regimen? What do you do? Oh, that's awesome. And you can see the difference. She's reverse aging. Victoria's seen it. Uh-huh. I've seen it so much so that I did uh-huh. a, a year or so. ago. I did a, a little ad for True Nutrition with her because she's such a big uh-huh. fan of it. But it has uh-huh. made a legit difference in the way her skin looks, in her hair quality. Like all of that mm. stuff is drastically mm-hmm. improved. I can see it in my skin. I haven't used it for the last couple of months, but when I get consistent with the collagen, which I just, like I said, I just ordered mine back. I was being lazy and I didn't have it. Um, yeah, it, it I can see a difference in my skin. The, the quality of your skin just improves from it. So there's no question yeah. in my mind that it makes a difference.
1: I, I, I wonder like the skin, of course it got stretched out It conform to the more, the greater body fat that you have. And I wonder for instance, like skin around the waistline that's hanging over, mm-hmm. um, just like, you know, skin that gets stretched when women get pregnant, then they have you know, stretch marks or a whole different story, but they've got loose skin from that. I wonder if wearing some sort of a support, like a, um, a waist trainer type of thing to hold skin in place, couldn't be an effective strategy Really. Um, to, to get, because then that skin is held tight and it's going to uh-huh. reform just like, just like skeletal muscle does this too. It will, it will change the number of sarcomeres you'll see in the in the muscle tissue, if, if, if you if it's casted in a shortened position or ca- cast in a lengthened position, um, longer than it typically would be. Yeah. Um, so there's some remodeling that goes on based, and I and I've seen this maybe in, um, when I was doing personal training years ago, and I would do skin folds on on people who had a good good amount of body fat, and um, I was always amazed, especially did a lot of these too when I was in in school, grad school, I and mean, we had a lab, and when I was teaching college courses. And you see someone who's they're they're bound to determine they're gonna wear those same jeans, you know, the size yeah. thirty-four waist or whatever forever. And they since put on twenty pounds. And you'll actually see people where literally kinda of like if you band a tree, I've, I've used this analogy before here, like you see where the their their pants are like creating a, a, a fold place or the fat just was gonna it's You're right it's grown over that. And there's this yeah. distinct line there. Yeah. And that's You're, from I've seen that's that that's from their clo- their clothing. Yeah, it just there's no place for that that's that skin to grow and develop because it's all tight. Yeah. So the same thing, I, I haven't seen any d- data on this, but I presume it probably could be done is if you just compress that and they do this, I think am not an expert on this, but I think they do this with like plastic surgery, gyno surgery. They have guys wear a compression vest Yeah. for that reason, because you just taken out that extra tissue, especially if you're young and they don't, they don't want you that got loose skin there. And if that's just hanging like that, taking out the gynoid tissue, um, it's going to stay like that. But if you if you wear the compression vest for however long you're supposed to, the idea is that skin flattens out. And when it's stored, when it's remodeling itself, it'll mm-hmm. remodel itself being being more constricted and flattened down. So someone who's losing weight, like wearing a compression garment of some sort um, to hold that fat in place, makes sense. And then there's darns. also this, yeah, that makes sense to me.
0: I you um, know I've always heard the opposite though, like that it wasn't going to do anything. But the way you just explained that, it makes total sense because I've seen that. With, like, the pants thing that you mentioned. Yeah. I've seen that.
1: It's great. You like at the pant line, you've got like a yeah. 34 inch waist, and you go above that, and it's like 42 it's like, inches. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a distinct line there. It's like, wow. Yeah. Like, that's not, if they were, if we were running around, you know, naked, like, like in the course of evolution, the fat would not be, it would, it would not just be like also drawn in right that. Yeah. It would just it'd be a much more, more smooth fat distribution across the, the midsection of the waistline. So, there's something that, and then there's this really interesting case study of the guy who ate nothing. Like he was like four or 500 pounds. It's been published in the literature and he literally ate nothing. He just took in water and vitamins and minerals to keep himself from going deficient. And he dropped, he dropped from like, I can't remember. I want to say he was like 400 plus pounds. He dropped down to like the one eighties, one nineties and he had no loose skin, Wow! but he ate, but he ate no protein. He ate nothing uh, he ate no calories uh, you Zilch. I
0: remember you telling me about this before, yeah, you just so served he himself, was, but his his body fed off itself huh
1: the- well, the body fed off itself, and I, I think it was also driving proteins from his skin from those uh, from those connected tissue yeah um, fibers, yeah. the collagen, the elastin et cetera so um not that so what makes me think this is why I brought up the collagen is I wonder for someone who is dieting down and you want the collagen there. And you're in, in, we know that collagen preserves muscle or sorry protein preserves muscle protein when you die down. You know high level you can use pretty high levels. And if, if you're someone who's in, like, well I'm using all my high level um, high biological value proteins, animal dry proteins to keep my muscle tissue in place and also want to keep my joints and everything good. So I have all my connective tissue proteins or amino acids that come from my collagen and you've got loose skin on top of that, you may actually be in the terms of loose skin, and whatever of that m- might be might be catabolized in the course of a diet tighten up your skin like what happened in this case study you may be doing yourself a disservice mm. if you're if you're preventing skin atrophy by it, taking in collagen because you're going to preserve your huh. skin mass as you would preserve your muscle mass yeah in this yeah case, with connective tissue with with collagen proteins that are specific to the skin i've wondered about that with dieting protein.
0: down if it would affect yeah. your ability to get that paper thin skin?
1: Yeah, I think there's. I think I mean we know like growth hormone for instance. Yeah, You've got yeah, thickers, exactly. Skin folds and acromegaly and growth hormone tends. It seems like it may have some effect on people. They don't get that thin skin look if they're using a lot of it. Yeah, some that could be water retention from GH. They don't take it out before they get. Yeah. On GH, but. Um, but I think there might be something with skin there as well. The said, so. uh, I
0: think that you could still keep your growth in, keep your collagen in and change a lot of other factors and still make progress. Yeah. First, right. It's, a, it's <laughs> a minimum thing. Yeah.
1: But, but, but there's variability too. So yeah. Just the fact that that guy came down in like one year, like that's is you can't lose, you can't lose weight any faster than that unless you tried to run a marathon every day. Like he was, his, <laughs> his caloric deficit was his energy expenditure for the day. Like, yeah. It wasn't five hundred calories today. It wasn't a thousand. It was his energy. It was it was everything. Because he ate nothing, no energy. And he so survived. He had too. no he had no loose skin. He was fairly young. He wasn't a you know 50, 60 year old guy. But so that makes me wonder if if maybe, you know, um not having collagen in there, not having collage protein would be worth it. And and then, you know, bind the bind the skin up so it's tight. Um, I think that makes a difference. I mean shit, like I have I have a uh, CPAP lines here, because i you know had a CPAP for 12 years now um, yeah longer than that and you know it scrunches your face together yeah so these lines on my face you know they i've had those agey like 10 years but that's from i wonder, having if, my mine, face I wonder if
0: mine are from that because i i wear a cpap as well yeah
1: yeah i mean i know like jordan peters um, yeah he got a big time didn't he he's got a big time yeah and he used to like he used to max out his his he is, is, pressure on his setup all the time. <laughs> I bet know? he had to. Yeah. He so he had to. Yeah. So, and he'd be like, Oh my God, look at his face. And like, it happens in like six months. Right. Nah. Your face just, it's a really dramatic wrap. And then it kind of stays, but you know, I there thought we go. about getting one of get. the surgeries done.
0: We got to get the, the Scott roadway. Stevenson, uh waist wrap. now. you know, Scott Stevenson, the, forti- the fortitude waist wrap for, for right. Loose skin. You
1: know? Right. <laughs> um,
0: let me see what else <laughs> we have here. Cause we had Wastitude. a, Wastitude, yeah.
1: that's it. <laughs> yeah. The Wastitude rap.
0: We got one about when I when I worked at the pop company, or soda for you guys not in the Midwest or Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, he said, did you struggle uh, while dieting with the pop company doing manual labor? Working for a moving company now, average uh, 15 to 25K uh, steps per day while dieting. I'll be honest, man. Dieting was easy for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't mind being hungry. I don't mind struggling, and I I would struggle toward the end. Like I remember my weakness. Like I would get weak at work. Mm. You know when you had to break down like an entire pallet of uh, you know cases that and that's like two tons or no two thousand pounds, so about a ton, and then you gotta like you've got four of them or eight of them, and you've got to like break those down and build them into a display or something. Uh, and you're on, you know, three weeks out from a show or one week out from from a show, and it's summertime, and you're in a like un un air conditioned room uh, while yeah. using Oral Trend. Uh, <laughs> it was bad, man. It was bad. That was sucked, dude. <laughs> that just yeah. that sucked. But no
1: DNP, no DNP. Yeah,
0: one time. Yeah, I did. I did DMP. <laughs> it was summertime as well. I remember specifically, like sitting in my car and talking to VJ about it and talking about you know how ATP gets basically zapped. And I was like, I just can't move, mm-hmm. man. I just, I just <laughs> wow. can't move. But um, outside of that, I would say the hardest part was growing. Growing was much more difficult mm-hmm. because I couldn't get the food up high enough. And eventually I did, when I went to like the 8,000 plus calorie a day diet. But mm-hmm. that in- eventually affected my digestion because I couldn't keep that all clean. And it just was rough on my on my stomach. I'll honestly say too, since I you know, when I did that job, I had given up what I thought would be my career in photography. You know, I, I got an education in in photography and fine art, worked in that industry, moved back home to Michigan and decided I you know, I don't know what I want to do next. So there are there are some people out there that have a misconception, think that like I was just always a warehouse worker or something. No, that's mm-hmm. not what I did. But when I came home, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. And what do I want to do? I don't know. So I took a job, just a job to make money because I still had to, like, make a living, right? And mm-hmm. and I did that so I could figure out my life. So it was kind of like an in-between things kind of job. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, I should have taken a different job to be better at bodybuilding, honestly. <laughs> I really should have, man. Now yeah, that's the hard job. I work with a guy or I formerly worked with a guy who climbed telephone poles for a living and went down in sewers to work on electricity. The dude, sometimes he has 24 hour shifts and uh, his caloric needs are so high, we had like a cheat meal in every day and he still had abs Mm -hmm. and we're trying to grow. Mm -hmm. Um, Now for him, it's a career and the longer he stays there, the better seniority he gets, the less sewers he has to crawl into. It's gonna pan out for him. But if you're in a situation like I mentioned I was, get a different job, you know what I mean? Get a job where you don't have to move as much. <laughs> Ron Partlow loved to sit in a uh, sit in a chair as a bouncer. He he said he would, you know, sit at the front door. Like, he got that job. Uh-huh. That was his job. Yeah. That's what he did. Yeah. He did that, and he did bartending, you know? And it's like, if it's an in-between job, then do something where you don't have to walk around as much. If it's your yeah. thing, and that's what you have to do, and that's what your career is, then, you know, so yeah. be it. Then I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right?
1: Yeah parking lot attendant, something like that, you know? Or yeah, <laughs> you exactly.
0: There. What about this one, Scott? Um, uh, at what point you consider doing a mini cut during a long off-season for a competitor? I know it's more of a visual thing, but um, how many weeks of balking you usually see a need for
1: a mini cut? Um, if someone, for instance, were doing fortitude training and... They, um, we decided to do that during the intensive cruise. Then it might be like every every six weeks, we might have a period where they're doing kind of a mini cut. Um, there's so many different reasons for doing that in so many different circumstances. So it's a super individual thing. Um, someone might need just a GI, um, deload, basically. Yeah. So, and, and, and sometimes too, um, you can literally just, if you're pushing the calories so high, you can literally just make sure you get your protein in and just drop back down to eating according to your appetite. So it's not even really, a, it's not even, a, it's not like you're restricting your food at all. Uh, yeah. Just eating, so if you go from five or 6,000 calories a day and you drop down to like just 3,000, eat according to your appetite, that's, and you've been stable at five or 6,000, let's say, and you're not making any gains, then everything, you know, pretty much is set. So that's your caloric balance. You're not going anywhere with that. You change your diet, your activity levels might change some, some other things, but you're going to incur a pretty substantial caloric deficit just from dropping down to just eating according to appetite. Make sure that it does go too low, but you can do that just to just to just to sort of restart the system. But it entirely depends on the person, where they are in their off season. Yeah. Um, it might be, you know, it might be you go after a show and you know you can go four or five six months without having to do that, but the next four or five months you may have to do it every week every month for Mm. a week to keep going so depends on the person depends on the gi depends on how much they're working that sort of thing like your guy the telephone guy like yeah probably didn't have to do any any mini cuts for him right no god no Um, yeah were not even thinking about it so with someone who's sitting at a desk job you know and they're trying to put on size going beyond what weight they've ever been at um, and their GI tends to have issues for whatever reasons, and you're trying to figure that out. You may need to do a mini cut, you know, once a month for a period of time, just for the GI, not necessarily for body fat.
0: And you might save yourself in the long run. You know, like I, I found that with people that I've pushed. Let's say we let's say we're like, okay, we're going to take this year off to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to compete mm-hmm. next season. We're going to do two whole years. I found that like get, getting somebody in shape after two years of having not dieting is a lot harder than if they had been a, you know, if they'd been in shape more frequently, mm-hmm. more recently, I should say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does give you um, some insight as to what you're going to have to do when the contest diet comes. Yeah. <clears throat> like yeah. How fast it comes off. Right. Yeah. Some people it's like, okay, we, we died you for three weeks there and you needed like three more and you'd have been in contest shape. Yeah. So, okay, that's good. Now we know Other that. Other people, like, you pull a bunch out. of
0: food and like nothing happens. That's as a coach, that's scary. Then you're like, oh yeah. crap, we've got problems. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: There was, um, I remember at this, um, uh, uh, at Armbrust Gym, did a seminar with Alan Aragon, Paul Carter. Yeah, yeah. And there was a woman that came up to and asked Alan this because he's the nutrition guy. Yeah. Um, and she was a competitor, and she just had a very stingy metabolism in both directions. She oh, could yeah. cut her calories, and it would just she would just stay the same. And she could massively overfeed, overeat, and it just stayed the same. It didn't go anywhere. And she was just perplexed by it. That she just had a, a system that was like that. You know, it just yeah. like the it had a very very robust set point settling point that was guarded against in both directions. So some people are like that.
0: Yeah. Um, Chris mentioned uh, he said I use the uh, Resmed AirFit. Uh, 30 mask no lines it's super soft on the face i use the resmed airsoft 20 mask Mm. airfit Mm -hmm. not airsoft that's something else yeah i use a mirage
1: quattro i think it's called that sounds like a razor it does right yeah or a race car or something yeah um i wish i tried a bunch of masks that was the one that really seemed like it worked um for me so Maybe I'll get, you know, one of the surgeries done. Inspire, I think, is the one. Okay. They, they suit you up with a, a little automatic device, stimulation device, I think.
0: Really? Huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's built in. I think there's a chip in there so they can make sure you don't go off grid. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. Who
0: knows? Let's see. Uh, anything else we had here? Uh, oh, yeah. So how about this one? Uh, why does a high sugar cheat meal like ice cream make me so ravenous uh, after uh, especially when uh, I'm on a
1: low carb diet the whole week I think it could be ghrelin being released yeah Um, yeah, that's my guess Like physiologically
0: that's the worst man like you can be on keto (sighs) for a month and not have any Uh cravings at all and then you're like I'm going to have a cheat meal and then after that the next three days it's like all I want to do is eat
1: yeah, and also the ketones have a um, an appetite suppressing effect too. Yeah. An anorexic effect, technically speaking. So getting out of ketosis. Wow. That's why when people do CKDs, you know, a lot of the big thing is like, I want to get into ketosis as fast as I can. Because when I do my, after I do my refeed, do my, my carb up, like on yeah. Sunday or whatever, yeah. if I don't get back into ketosis, I just keep on thinking about wanting more carbs for the next two days. Yeah. So they do all sorts of stuff, like, you know, waking up in the morning fast and doing cardio right off the bat and not, not eating anything for a while. Okay. So you can sort of so you, yeah, drive the drive the insulin down and it, glucagon up and get the ketones. So once the ketones are there systemic that must be the thing that I think that might be the thing that makes ketogenic dieting work for some people versus others is that they just don't want to eat as much. It works for low carb works great for me for dieting. I don't my appetite goes to just very, very minimal. Yeah. I do great with it. It's easy.
0: Um I'll bring this last one up here and then we'll hit it. I'm not familiar with this uh, Humafort.
1: Yeah, no experience with, experience it. with it. Manafort Humanafort. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. It's, um, I can't even probably describe it. It's, uh, I'm blanking blank on the guy's name. There's an IFBB Pro on professional muscle. I can see him in my mind's eye. It seems like he's a really nice guy. A lot of people over there use it. I would look over there to see people's experiences. It's all over the place. You read, sometimes people say, I didn't do anything at all for me. And then some people say it was the greatest thing uh, thing ever. It's sort of an Eastern block, I believe, um, recovery complex that's organically derived. And I couldn't tell you the details about it. I looked into it a long time ago and um, there actually is some research out there. I think it's maybe in like Romanian or something like that. Um, Okay. It's either you kind of love it or you don't, but I don't, I don't know much about it to give a really anything remotely close to an astute answer. So I can't, I can't say I don't have any experience. I didn't give it a go.
0: Weird. Yeah. No, I I don't know why, but I never heard of this before.
1: Yeah. Type in Humanafort over on professional muscle and I just looked it up. It
0: also says a bunch of other stuff. Um, it says, is your endocrine system balanced? It's good for yeah. depression, mood changes, yep. hot flashes. Everything. Yeah. Irritability. I got all I got all these things. I got irritability sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I have fatigue. I have poor sleep. Little <laughs> libido. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. Man, so you're gonna have this. So it sounds like this is gonna be a two part thing for the IGF thing, huh?
1: I think I just put it into two videos because it was getting long, and I wanted to make sure my computer didn't crash or something like that. So I just kind of stopped halfway through. Yeah, Um, yeah. And and people are, you know, 90 minutes is a long long video all to have in one. Oh, yeah. Um, But, yeah, it ended up being kind of in two parts. All I did was just stop the video after one slide, and I just picked it up. I didn't, like, say – didn't leave any cliffhangers or anything like that. But, yeah, I think it will be out in the next week or so. I gave it – I sent it off to RJ, who runs John's site. Okay. um, Like last week. So you should have it out. Nice. And I, it's funny you mentioned, mentioned Steve. He just came out with the IGF. Literally, he came out with – I saw that video probably yeah. because, you know, the algorithm, like they're watching. They knew I was looking up all this IGF-1 stuff and all of a sudden Steve's video comes out and he's got it. And he's saying like, I'm not going to send you any of this. I'm not going to tell you who my source is. Just stop. <laughs> he said it like five times. I,
0: yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. People are like, where would you oh, get it from, dude. Steve? Where would you get it?
1: Yeah. He has an autoresponder on his Instagram. Yeah, um, he does. Yeah. I was on on his podcast um, a week or so ago. Oh, were you?
0: Uh, No kidding. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What'd you guys talk about? You were in um, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Mainly mainly drug related things, but we were on on there for like two hours. Okay, Um, cool. And uh, it was funny because he's like, he's like, man, just be ready. When this comes out, you're going to just get bombarded with requests for consultations. (laughs) <laughs> and I got a sum total of zero. I got none. <laughs> hey, wait, but it is I took what it that. As, I took that as a good thing because I think, like, I made it clear I'm not like in the business of just telling people how to use drugs.
0: Yeah, so, yeah.
1: So they saw that I think, and, and that's not that's not the uh, currency that people are wanting to to buy nowadays. Um, yeah. So I got no no requests for consultations as a result of that. That I know of, I don't think I had nothing in the next week. You're but good I mean, at helping people
0: sales. think like we talked about IGF here today and mm-hmm. you didn't tell anybody how
1: to do anything, but you sure gave me some ideas on how I might want to, if I were to do it. You yeah. hear what I, mean? I mean, it's like, it is really with the IGF one. It's like, I can totally see why it wouldn't work for anybody and I can totally see why it might work for somebody and just yeah. that stuff with the, the cultured muscle cells from the rectus abdominis of those surgery patients. It's like, it's like, it's all over the place with humans. It, when you find that stuff, it's like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, you know, um, and you know what? It, I'll add this in. Just one sort of thing that was interesting is that with anabolic steroids, <clears throat> I can't remember which year it was now, but for I think there were two position stands from the American College of Sports Medicine. The first two on anabolic steroids, where they said they don't work because the oh, literature, yeah. or what they said is that the literature at this time does not support um, an anabolic effect or whatever of anabolic steroids. The purported effect is not supported by the literature we have available at this time. Yeah. But those were all low dose studies.
0: Oh, is that those what all, it was?
1: That was the, we hadn't, didn't have like the Boson et al study with 600 milligrams of testosterone a week. Um, or they had just like self reports things, you know, like people taking X amount of gear and et cetera, et cetera. And you're not going to see much change with someone who's at that level over, you know, three or four months. Yeah. They did not have the, they didn't have the direct studies with higher doses that we now have available to, to demonstrate that effect. So, but, but, Effective dosing of IGF one in the context of endogenous production mm. um, is sort of in that range. It's comparable to what, what the state of the literature was then with anabolic uh. steroids, and was like, no, they, of course they didn't work. But the thing is, who has you know five thousand dollars to spend a day on IGF one to way supersede endogenous production? Yeah, um, or you know, dose it at a regimen where you're where you're overcoming all these binding protein potentialities. Like you're really it's just a, it's a total different animal compared to steroids or like growth hormone. 10 I use a growth hormone. is like 10, 15 times endogenous production a day yeah. you know, or a thousand milligrams of testosterone. is 10 times endogenous production per day, but you can't get 10,000, 10 times IGF one production per day. Um, with, if anything other than, you know, a billionaire's budget. And then if you did that, you know, who knows that might be the case where Rhonda Patrick could be dead on. Like. Now you're just asking for a tumor, right? Yeah. (laughs) You're doing that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, So what you really need is like there's got to be somebody who's on the inside. They know somebody who's like, hey, they work at this company. They can get it. And then there's going to be a bodybuilder out there who's doing the, you know, 10 milligrams a day.
1: I mean, the thing is, and I'm not going to say like there are some because I'm not an expert in this area, but there's there's drug design potential like these these vectors, these viral vectors that you they ejected in the muscle. Mm-hmm. animal studies um, and they overproduced IGF-1 locally and produced muscle growth in that muscle right like that's that's something that could be had like you can read that study and you could find out where they got those where they got in that injection and then you know you could hope that those that those viruses don't make their way into your prostate or whatever and you know you yeah. prostate cancer that would probably be a way to get it I think um, and if there if IGF, if drug development weren't were geared towards bodybuilders towards producing local hypertrophy, there would be drugs available to do that based on IGF one's actions. Those things, they can be developed pharmaceutically, pharmacologically. That's totally possible. It's that study demonstrates it. the one I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, But there's, but they're not using They're not. IGF one is being used for that purpose. It's, you know, it's for dwarfism. Right. Right. And they're not trying to produce local muscle. You don't just want a bunch of really buff dwarfs who aren't tall. Like the idea is to increase their, their, their bone structure, right? And everything, everything. Else, you know, relatively, yeah. Yeah. So that's why it's that's why they give it. For instance, that one uh, formulation with IGF one binding protein three. Yeah, because it seems like there would be they some benefits, give it in a though. Way.
0: You know, like yeah. somebody has an underdeveloped something, or post surgery, or after a tear. Or, yeah. Is, but I guess it's not enough to to warrant the investment into creating that at yeah. this time.
1: I think. I think too, like even like dwarfism, you can say that's something that substantially affects that, that person's quality of life. Like that's their life is dramatically changed by, by technically being handicapped. If they're less than four foot 10 or five foot tall, whatever the the technical, the legal description of that is, there's a, like if you're below four ten in many states, you can apply for handicap status because you're so short. That makes sense. But, But yeah, but the, but there's this balance and this is what I tried to, um accentuate in that in that um uh talk for for mountain dog diet is you know you better be damn sure if you're going to create an a local igf1 viral vector what have you that's going to help someone recover a torn muscle or you know repair broken bone or what have you bone would be more difficult than muscle um you better be dang sure that's localized right oh yeah um yeah. And I didn't go and look. I'd have to dig in. But yeah, because if it's not, if that gets out elsewhere and, and like it doesn't take much, even if it's just I mean, here's the thing with the animal studies. Right. I mean, if, if you inject that animal and like, oh, I accidentally hit a vein, you know, yeah. and I didn't go into the muscle tissue and stay localized and it went systemic. Yeah. And it goes to the person's, you know, heart or whatever, and they develop a heart tumor or something, you know, something, you know, some bizarre thing like that. Well, that if that happens in an, in an animal study, well, and that just that just animal just gets put to sleep, and, and that's it. And they me- men- mention it, maybe sometimes they don't. People don't even mention those things. You know, that's sort of there's all sorts of shenanigans that happen in the research world. Yeah, people people should go to retractionwatch.org org if they <laughs> want to read about bad science. Oh um, yeah, but in but in oh yeah, it's kind of it's kind of scary. But if you go if you are in the if you are doing research with animals, then you know then that's a that's a lost animal. You know you just add another one to replace it but if with a human if that happens one time out of a thousand well then that's that's it you're gone baby lawsuit you know yeah you take a company down with that kind of a an issue so the risk risk um, benefit ratio is not particularly great for developing although we're technically able to but this just doesn't make sense um legally and risk benefit ratio wise yeah i guess
0: that would make sense yeah, I wish I yeah. could find this video, Scott. I had a video of you training. Remember, I showed you that video the other day. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was I had it one that of, same weekend. Or yeah, it was. I had one of you training at the Arnold. And I was looking to see if I could pull that. You know what? I just found it. I just found okay. it. I wonder if I can. This would be a I good way to. to this would be a good way to go out edge. here. Okay. Um This is a cable. This is a cable you did. Let me see if I can right. first. Uh, get this saved. I have to move it really quick. Let's see if it takes okay. a second here. What's happening? I think I moved it. I think this was a good set. Somehow you're. Oh yeah, yeah, it was a good set. When I <laughs> saw this video, I was like, oh shit. Right. I think if I pull it in this way, oh there it is, reveal and finder. Yeah. So guys, we're gonna go out on this one. Check this out.
1: See how many reps in reserve. How many reps in reserve you get? Yeah. Oh, okay. A drop set. Well, that's interesting. I remember that machine now.
0: Yeah, this is at Mike Davies' gym. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So doing a little, little cheat reps there. Get all your gym pins lined up there? Yeah, I think those were just pins. I carry those around in my. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And now some cheats.
0: We're about a little more than half, two thirds of the way done now.
1: Oh shit! <laughs> <did> I, okay. <laughs> I remember I was I was totally doing deadlifts or uh, drop sets for a long time. Yeah. Come on. You're doing a fiber. I'm trying to keep I'm trying to pull that really low to my Yeah, kitchen. you are.
0: What is that? You were jacked there and tan too.
1: <laughs> this is a good look. The Mohawk is <laughs> the Mohawk baby.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was sweet. That was great, man yeah hell of a set as finn says here all right well let's say we get out of here guys uh of course besides the mountain dog site uh, you can go over there mountain dog diet i believe it is right mountain dog, diet. Mountain dog diet. Com. Yeah. that'll be coming up pretty soon if you guys want to join over there even if you just joined for the month just to see scott's video you know that'd be awesome um and uh you know andrew's part of that over there too i'm sure you'll see a bunch of stuff with him and i know nate spears over there too uh they'll do a mm-hmm. video now and again too and uh, of course, go to um, fortitudetraining.net. Check out Scott's training plan and byobcoach.com, or go to uh, just look up Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. You can do that on Amazon to get the hardcover. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, you can get uh, collagen, hydrolyzed beef collagen like I use or a bunch of other stuff from True Nutrition. Use our code THINK over there. I just placed like a big $200 order with them this morning. Um, wow. You know That helps using our code, lets them know that you support what we're doing. Uh, and if you haven't shopped with them before, give them a try. Uh, give them a try. And like I said, the code, it 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 definitely it helps our show. Uh, along with, uh, you know, supplementsource.ca for our Canadians because they have great deals that change week to week. Like just different blowouts or label changes. You know, things where like if they have a closeout on something or it's short dated, then you'll be like, you know, 20 bucks. Like I said, a while ago, I saw some John Metal Recovery the the granite recovery for twenty dollars mm. so it's like you, oh, you can't beat that just grab like three tubs of it it's still good yeah. i promise you know yeah. um and uh check out amino asylum use our code think over there for uh, your igf needs all your igf needs <laughs> anyway guys we'll see you soon thank you scott as always and thank you guys for tuning into the live My stream pleasure,
1: brother until next time
0: All right. We kept the kept a good amount of uh, viewers through that whole